and welcome to Movie the Musical, a podcast about movies that have been turned into musicals. I am your host, Ben Kay. We are here to investigate, interrogate, and celebrate the art of adaptation from screen to stage. We are a podcast that loves questions, and today's question is... CeCe Baxter has a one-bedroom apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan within walking distance of Central Park. He purportedly pays $85 a month in rent, and this is in the year 1960. (laughs) Adjusting for inflation in the year 2021, he would be paying an estimated $751. My question is, how the hell do I find this magical, relatively affordable apartment in walking distance of Central Park. Well, I, I think the reality is, is that it just doesn't exist, just as, as well as like this, the love in this story. Oh. <laughs> not, not, not any spoilers. Oh um, my I God, just think this right is like a, on a, in. God, <laughs> right in. Beautiful woodwork. Like, where do you find that in an apartment Absolutely. Yeah. It, it just doesn't make any sense. And I mean, it's, I think there's a lot of things we're going to get into. It's like a very visually stunning movie, but a lot of it just is just pure uh, hyper- well, like elemental storytelling that you just have to suspend all disbelief away. I'm just, I'm like, any, anyway, whatever. That's we could do a whole episode about sort of just Real like estate? the general about the general rent crisis, about yes. how just wait the wage inequality. But that's for another time. <laughs> Today's episode, of course, if you haven't figured it out from context already. Is about the 1960 film *The Apartment*, directed by Billy Wilder, and its subsequent musical theater adaptation, *Promises, Promises*, the 1968 musical with a book by Neil Simon, lyrics by Hal David, and music by Burt Bacharach. And today's guest, it's a wonderful, wonderful human being, in my estimation, and I'm not just saying this because they're a friend of mine. Um, <laughs> They're like one of, I think, the most exciting uh, filmmakers based in Chicago today. Stop that. Never. I will never stop it. Um, You can find them through uh, their production company, Prairie Creek Productions. They've made uh, wonderful short films such as Phosphorescence, Self-Portrait, and they're working on the upcoming uh, film, Happy Birthday, Jimmy. Yes, yes, yes. The wonderful... These are all true. These are all true facts. I I, I, I can co-sign the last part. (laughs) The wonder Connor Allen Smith is here today. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. And, and of I, course, as always, is uh, and of course, as always, is producer Brad Moorhead is also <laughs> hello, hello. I had, to, I had to get get you in. There. I got to actually just write that into my intro so I don't forget. That's, that was fine. It's I don't, not I, fine. No, I think hey, it's... the best. The best producers are like you know you don't even know I'm here. <laughs> well, now we know you here. But anyway, now you know I'm here. Brand's I'm here, first. and Connor is here for this wonderful episode. And you know, I'm so excited to be here. I, I'm coming. We we had a little bit of a scheduling issue with the original record of this, and uh, it was not because of a lack of interest. It's just I just needed more time for my body to handle all this like, excitement and ecstasy I had for this for this podcast. And so, first off, and on the record, I want to thank both Bran and and Ben for your flexibility. And I also wanted to say that with this, I was also able to listen to to most of your first episode on on Shrek, which was lovely. And I even just listening to the intro once and now watching it once it's so it's just it feels so nice to see you doing this because it feels like i don't know like a baby 
uh, with a bottle that I don't know. It feels contorted. That's not right, but it feels so natural. So I'm trying to get at. <laughs> that means a, no. That means a lot. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Your, those... your voice in my ears. It's just it's this podcast form. Just it, fit, it seems like it's the perfect place for you, and I love hearing you. That's that's I I really appreciate that. I'm very grateful for you. Uh, for for context for those listening in the future, uh, we are recording this the day after our Shrek episode dropped. So you all get a. You'll get a little bit of a timepiece, but you're listening to this way in the future, um, where probably something, I don't know, more terrible or less terrible is happening in the world <laughs> right now. It's hard to, I don't want to predict. I don't want to put a pin in what... It might be nice weather in Chicago. It might be nice weather. Don't say that. Don't no. bring that upon us. That's a, that's a surefire like way to curse eight us. Eight weeks, surely. Eight surely. weeks? Can okay, you, wow. Can you... Yeah. Can, 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 can any... If you want to tweet at us and let us know how the weather is right now as David Lynch-style timestamp the weather. Yes. Um... So yes, but even though you broke your promise, promise to record mm-hmm. last week, you are here now. Which is quite fitting after I've like skimmed the script now. Yes, exactly. Um, I'm. Is this is this going to be like the best movie that we cover on this podcast? I just that's my take. I'm just like I love this movie. Yeah. yeah. So the apartment. Um, mm-hmm. and I'll so I'll say Connor when I message you when I when I reached yes. out to you. You, I'll say this, and forgive me if this is going too far, you were initially skeptical because you're not a musical person. Is this true? Yes, uh, I guess this is another good disclaimer about there. I don't know anything um, <laughs> about a lot of things, and specifically musicals. And so I was really skeptical if I was going to be the right person to talk about this. I, I love the, the, the theory of adaptation. I love the, like, the question behind this whole podcast. But the reality is, is like I feel so... Uh, and I think part of this is from kind of coming from, it will also have brand kind of, uh, uh disputes this, but, uh, with his, with or with their existence, um, <laughs> that being in Arkansas, like there wasn't a lot of musical theater around me. And so I didn't feel like it was there. Uh, and I did, I didn't feel like I was like taught at an early age to like really, um, watch it or appreciate it in a certain way. I, I grew you up. You never made it up the road to Branson, Missouri. <laughs> Not really. I mean, that's Jesus. That's I know. Jesus Broadway. That's true. That's true. Uh, <laughs> and then of course, uh, was it was it Yakov that was up there as well uh, with oh, his yeah. very specific show. Um, <laughs> uh, the, so uh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I did make it up to Branson for uh, Silver Dollar City primarily, though. Um, but I grew up in a, and I don't know how much you want to get into this, but a very conservative home. I feel like a lot of like Disney movies and Christian radio uh, for the first 18 years. And that's about it. Um, yeah. Like the most quote unquote culture my, my parents gave me was a of an, an Asia vinyl, like when I was like 16. Okay. That's pretty cool. That is yeah. actually pretty cool. It's kind of cool in, in hindsight, but like when that's the only thing that my parents gave me as, as far as art, I was a little I was a little confused. And so um so I, so the main thing I've like really fallen in love with it, with is is films because I feel like those were um really uh they're, they're easy to package and uh distribute and, and transport. So uh really since I was able to have uh, my own thought processes i was like oh i'm gonna watch these movies and i started like yeah. watching movies like kind of obsessively from like age 16 through now um yeah and so i feel like i can talk about movies and i'm excited to talk about billy wilder and the apartment but when it comes to the musical stuff i very much look forward to nodding and smiling a lot um <laughs> and i have some thoughts about the adaptation because i think adaptation is a, is a very interesting concept like i said but yeah. uh but yeah that, i'm excited nonetheless and I'm, I'm happy to be here i'm happy that you're here too i mean I would I would argue that this episode is here to serve two purposes. Mm-hmm. Number one, 
is to have you as a guest and to prove that we are not just a musical theater podcast, that we are a podcast about the art of film as well. Like you, I, I feel like you have such a wider film vocabulary than I do. As, as just as someone who is actively oh. a filmmaker, who is actively like someone who is <laughs> making film, right? Making movies right now. Um, so you're, you are sort of, I would say like our first guest from the world of film, who is actively not from the world of either theater or musical theater to like really sort of bring in that perspective and talk about, and talk about Billy Wilder in far more depth than I think I ever could. Um, mm. And number two, this episode is here to show that this shit has been going on longer than we think. I feel like musical yeah. movie to musical adaptations feel like such a contemporary, uh, feel like such a contemporary, I almost a nuisance, but <laughs> it's like cash uh, grab. Yes. Nuisance yes. Is appropriate exactly. Too, though. <laughs> um, a parasite on art. <laughs> oh, yeah. But no, Can you so imagine yeah, I mean, parasite the musical uh, coming soon. <laughs> My God. Um, either way, I want to, Throw us back into this. Please throw us. Gone through all those issues. Throw us a a fucking javelin. Um, But yeah, so it feels like such a contemporary thing of like this, like this, this tradition, if you will, this new found tradition of turning movies into musicals. But we're talking about one of the earliest examples. I would say the early, we will bring the, the earliest example will be in our next season. So keep listening and you'll find out what that is. But this is one of the earliest examples of a movie being adapted to the stage in eight years. Not a, not a long span between the original The Apartment and Promises, Promises. Just an eight-year time span where they were like, let's do this. Let's take this best picture winner, find out how to monetize it even more. And, but just like a little night music... Uh, one of our previous episodes based on Smiles of a Summer Night. I think, I mean, I feel like that's one of the easiest and like best things you can do when you're adapting something to the stage. Change the fucking name. That's like, I feel like that's like rule number one. If you want to like make a good stage adaptation, just call it something different. Like stake your claim. Just be like, we are going to be something different. This is not Coke. This is new Coke. (laughs) <laughs> yes exactly but it's i don't know if i would call promises promises the new coke <laughs> of the apartment <laughs> franchise i feel like that's that's shitting on it a little too much oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, it yeah. warrants that at all so let's let's go wild let's talk wilder Wonderful. um connor yes i i i did a little bit of research on on mr wilder mm-hmm. um i know absolutely nothing this is the first billy wilder film i've ever seen oh wonderful okay and in all, in all honesty <laughs> this is my first as well and so I've, I've done a little bit of research uh, on my own in the last couple of weeks but typically when i go this far back um in cinema i've watched more like nicholas ray stuff um mm-hmm. some uh oh i'm forgetting the name now but uh all the heaven allows that beautiful um those melodramas, um, but nobody wants to. Oh, Doug, Doug, Douglas, Douglas Sirk, yeah. Exactly. Um, or even I'll, I'll travel out uh, to Japan. I'm a huge Ozu fan, and I've, like especially in the last year in lockdown, as I've been trying to cling to like a sense of normalcy. I've been watching almost yeah. all of Ozu's filmography. Um, just to get, yeah, just because they're so mundane and that, that sounds so, so pleasant right now. Um, <laughs> 
but so as far as uh, Wilder, it's a name I've I've, I've known, uh, and it's always something I've kind of just like just elevated me. And um, I mean, I feel like the biggest one or the one who here growing up, whether you like films or not, is Some Like It Hot. Like I I didn't even know uh, yeah. I don't even know what I didn't know what that meant. I don't know what that movie was. I didn't know who Billy Wilder was, but I knew at a young age what that title was um yeah and so actually this morning i watched that uh just for some for some additional context because i know within the apartment there's like this kind of visual joke of marilyn monroe or marilyn monroe and uh it's because yeah. wilder liked working with marilyn monroe um and actually well this was this was right after some like a hot the year yeah? after, the year after yeah yeah um oh wow another weird time stampy thing is right now i'm reading um uh, vonnegut's uh, Sire, uh titans of siren and this was published the same year uh as uh it was published the same year as the apartment, I, I believe, or, or something like that. It was, it was 59. And so I was, okay. it was like interesting to be like, oh, these are very conventional, like, I don't know. It was, just, it was weird for me to place this, like uh, the, the, the subversive uh, and um, the subversive voice and like kind of like a way of like looking at the world next to this very like um, trope filled and quaint uh and I mean, and not to, like not to defang Wilder because he is trying to kind of push yeah. the boundaries in some ways, but it's also like it does not hold up in the same way as like a Vonnegut novel. And also not that Vonnegut's like perfect or anything by all means. Um, sure. But uh, but I feel like there like there is like a, a skepticism that uh, that aged better with uh, with uh, that written text um, than that was maybe maybe practical or feasible on a budget like this. Um because in like some of this, like while it's so visually interesting, a lot of it kind of falls into like, and again, some of it is tra transgressive, but a lot of it is pretty quaint and goes down pretty easy uh, as far as like narrative arc wise for that time period. Brian, had you, have you seen Some Like It Hot or any other Billy Wilder films? Some Like It Hot for sure. I feel like that was a movie I, um, I mean, I, I feel like that was a movie I saw before I, I realized that like my own tendencies towards non-binary and, and mm. to wearing quote women's clothing and stuff like that. Like, sure. I feel like I became aware of that and that being the themes of that movie in junior high and then probably saw it in high school mm -hmm. uh, and loved it and was like, it was one of those things where it was like, you know, typical, like dumb small town <laughs> guy being like, wow, this movie from a long time ago is funny. Actually. <laughs> it's actually funny. And like, not just being t a total idiot that didn't believe that like, you know, humor could transcend more than, I don't know, five years or so. So yeah. I loved it. And I like Jack Lemmon. We actually share a birthday. Oh. Uh, you know, he's you he's go. dead and <laughs> much older. Than that. But, uh, he is. Uh, this is true. <laughs> but we're both well, I've actually never seen Jack Lemmon and you in the same place at the same time, just to put that on the record. Oh, God. What I a, would say maybe that... I was reincarnated, but I definitely, like, Grumpy Old Men came out when I was in, alive. So, well, and that's enough. So I, go ahead. Yeah, go on. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I haven't seen Some Like It Hot. Um, I've heard great things. I also, I mean, I, I feel like I'm, they're also adapting that into a musical. As, well, Already it, has been. It, I was going to say, it, well, it has been. They're doing another adaptation of it. They're adapting oh. it into another musical. Um, I think they adapted it into a musical with a different title. And now Sugar, yeah, they should It's called Sugar. Yeah, they did. They listened <laughs> to me title. in the past, but now they are making just like Some Like It Hot, the musical. Uh, tem uh, temporal pincer is what they did. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> okay. That's a little Easter egg for, for the real fans out there. <laughs> don't even say what it is. Don't even say <laughs> oh, no, 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 what no. it's referencing. What it uh, is is the same forward and back. Uh, <laughs> I'll, see you, you I'll see you again, friend. There you uh, go. Oh, my gosh. Uh, 
but no, so I, and I haven't seen Some Like It Hot. I know, like, it it gets a bad rap as just, like, most old films that use a humorous mm. premise of men cross-dressing yeah. usually do get a bad rap. Um, but, I mean, I, I don't know. I How, how does, I mean, Connor, I think literally... that's a limited, I think that's no, a I, limited reading of it. For honestly. sure. I was going to say, Connie, you watched it this morning. So, I mean, like, how, how, how does it hold up? You know, I think aspects of it do hold up and a lot of it, and some of it doesn't, but yeah, I do think it is a little bit of a limited reading um, to use a uh, uh, brand's words. Um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, and this is another thing I, I was going to mention a second ago is because growing up, I did know what like uh, uh, grumpy old men were. So like, I feel like our generation or the generations of like uh, in, in proximity, like the Jack Lemmon of it all is like, this is this old guy that like pops up in movies sometimes and he's silly. Um, My fellow Americans, that was a goofy, dumb guy comedy. Exactly. Comedy. Yeah. Um, Jack Lemmon's so, wonderful, just in yeah. general. Yeah, 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 and that's something I've like really because I watched the apartment twice for this once with the commentary um, uh, from the Arrow release, and then once the once just neat. Um, and then I also with watching some like Aha, that like that was my big takeaway is like this Jack Lemmon guy pops, you know, <laughs> he's gonna have a future. Um, <laughs> yeah, because, as and, the producer of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly um and that's the thing is i feel like the, the thing that holds up the best from something like a hot is jack lemon and his his business that he does and i also think that like as he is in drag there there, there are certain ways that like he transcends like that being the joke of it like he actually um creates this like romantic relationship even though it's kind of i mean it's the it's the big final joke of the movie is like mm-hmm. them like overcoming the uh, this uh this uh secret he has um and the, it ends with acceptance which i really which i really love um and so i think there is more to that movie than uh than meets the eye um to bring back the transformers and but that being said i don't think the tony curtis plot is entirely uh up to date for romance and i think marilyn monroe nah. uh while i'll be a wonderful performer and like really uh doing the lord's work of like bringing a character to uh, to a characterless character um their romance sure. is completely dated and uh, does not hold up at all billy wilder billy wilder born samuel wilder or shmuel mm. wilder in the hebrew he is uh, an austrian born director and then moves to america um i believe i mean yeah he's i mean he's prolific he is mm-hmm. sunset boulevard Double indemnity, double indemnity, the seven year itch. I mean, like, and I think what I love again, even like as someone who is a complete wild and neophyte, just looking at his filmography, I'm mm-hmm. just like, he's something of a of an of a journeyman, right? He like, yeah, he, he yeah, like took on every single genre. Yeah, he, he and he started out kind of uh, I believe starting. This was part of the, the tidbits I took up from the commentary, uh, basically as just like very much as a craftsman trying to do make make these scenarios and like he worked for Ernest Lubitsch um for uh, on many films and mm-hmm. um is it Bill Patton who does the commentary I should I'll probably reference that should I uh, Bruce that? Block Bruce Block yeah exactly. I, 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 I listened I listened I listened to it right before this this is the, oh. um we're not sponsored by uh the Arrow Academy but that we did uh yes this is the Arrow Academy Blu-ray uh great version great yes. 4K restoration of the film well, then you also um, are intimately aware with him saying, "Well, it well if you look in the script eight hundred times in that uh, in that commentary, 
It's a, it's a very good drinking game that will have you uh, passed out uh, sooner than later. Um, yeah, like he's, he's yeah, he's very yeah. proud to be like you know the, uh, her putting the hat on the chair. You know that was in the script. I'm in like, script. okay, Bruce, thank you. <laughs> great, that's great. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but in the commentary, he talks about how uh, um, Wilder's biggest influence was Lubitsch and trying to create these kind of like this like realism, but like these more. Um, uh, more kind of nuanced perspectives of it and going a little bit more, and this comes across in the script writing, providing these flourishes and these garnishes that separates it from like a, like your normal uh, everyday scenario or your normal everyday romance of the time. There are these flourishes or specifics to it that I think helps both this and his work that I have seen stand the test of time. Cause even though aspects are dated, the specifics are universal. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if you would, if you, if if one can think of like a contemporary like 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 who would be like the contemporary like sort of like version of Billy Wilder if that if that person even exists it's you know like yeah I you know I really love the the rom com um, uh, enough said uh, with Gandolfini and Julia Louise Dreyfus and that's um, Nicole Holof uh, Center, yeah yes, oh yes, sure. I, I think somewhere like that would be maybe uh, or uh, even like Mariel Heller as well. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. She's yeah. like she's a brilliant director who, like, again, like d- makes different kinds of movies, but they still feel like stylistically, like whatever needs to be, whatever, however this story needs to be told, like that's how I'm going to tell it. Mm-hmm. And, and well, and all, I mean, this is a little bit more dated, but I think we could even reference James L. Brooks as this like bridge before he sure. kind of fell off. The, the, sure. the, the the cadence in which she writes, there's like the, there's the wit to it, but also he does kind of play with the world a little bit and again it's more of that specifics to the characters i think he really he really brings and brings us to the modern day yeah uh two two sort of behind the scenes things uh that i want to sort of talk about before we actually dive into the specifics of the apartment um number one my favorite thing is that the the original titles for the film there were two original titles for the film before it was named the apartment uh who's been sleeping in my bed Mm -hmm. and someone's been sleeping in my bed I mean, again, I mean, both accurate, but also the apartment is accurate, right? It is about an apartment. Well, yeah, (laughs) I think objectively the apartment is the better title. I do also like the, 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 scenario i have in my head of someone going up like halfway through production but like this title doesn't work and just erasing the first word and making it a question <laughs> um but but yeah i think the apartment is objectively the best title they landed on and i'm, I'm yeah. glad it's called that uh i think it's honestly even a better title than promises promises um yeah sure yeah i, I could i could see that um and then another thing that was from the commentary it was uh apparently billy wilder talking about Sort of, he so he apparently loved working within the studio system. Good for him. I don't know if that reflects poorly on him or well on the studio <laughs> system of the time. Hard to tell. Um, but he said, in his estimation, in Wilder's estimation, there were three types of settings for like make. There are two, three modes that a like a, a that a shooting that is that a shoot would go. Um, there'd either be like a church like a like a church like mode where sort of everyone's very serious and very de- dedicated and very focused in a very reverent way there was a mode of bedlam and confusion where there's just mass chaos and everyone is just like running like a chicken with their head cut off and sort of that is the propulsion of how a movie gets made 
And then I guess what, he, what, this is his words, this is Wilder's words, what he would call a, quote, concentration camp. And he is, he is Jewish and his family was murdered <laughs> in the Holocaust. So I will give Ugh. him carte blanche, carte blanche to use that phrase, whatever. Um, and I'm Jewish as well, so whatever. Um, but where well, I guess, yeah, there's just sort of like a very, like a mournful, like weights hanging on everyone and he hated all of those modes and so he sort mm. of had this method that he liked where he compared it he called it like a viennese coffee shop where it's sort of like you know people hanging out as a chill vibe uh and everyone's like having a good time but also like still even in that relaxed atmosphere everyone knows what they need to get done and they get it done. And I, you could absolutely feel that in this film. Like everyone seems to be having a ball. Everyone seems to be, there seems to be like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's a heavy film. You know, there are some, there are moments of course, where mm -hmm. the subject matter gets very serious, but I feel like there is a lightness to the performance and just, even just to the, the way the film moves. So I think, I don't know. It it yeah, gives no, the film I, this, this I, beauty to it. I completely agree. I think that you can there's you can, you can definitely like smell like an air of play to the whole thing. I think that leads to like why he works so well with like Jack Lemmon and and Marilyn Monroe because both of those are personalities that really need space to like try things out and pop almost like a theatrical kind of um, uh, experience. Like where they like well specifically for like you're improvising on set. Um, like you just need people to like find it and just get it down once. So giving these these talents the space to just be at ease and not feel like they are under this like uh, unsufferable kind of pressure um, or, or need to get it done in a Clint Eastwood, like one take style, I think leads to them being able to like find it. Um, and like, again, lead to all this Jacqueline business with like a thermometer or a pen um, that makes the movie pop. The, the nasal spray thing. I just, that, yes. that fucking, that moment where he just squeezes <laughs> the, and the part that was improvised, right? He like, he yep. just, he did that and they kept it in. Cause I mean, it's a beautiful moment. Um, and so we'll just, let's go through the plot of the apartment, which is great because it's also the plot of promises, promises. <laughs> they don't really change a lot. Um, which is honestly great. Good for them. It's a pretty tight plot anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, our main character is Cece Baxter, played by Jack Lemmon. Um, we begin, as all great films do, uh, with uh, B-roll footage of New York City while a voiceover... <laughs> while there's voiceover over that footage. Um, and it's the only voiceover in the, in the film, which is also fine. Whatever. I will, I will forgive it. Um, he may, I think, he, in the, again, back to this freaking commentary, Bruce Block makes a point where they're like, ah, uh, how, do, you know, they thought it would be weird to have this voiceover open the film, but I guess they were fine with it. Well, and that's the thing, too, is I feel like if we're going to have voiceover, just do it. Don't don't regret it. And I, I think like what yeah. this is it, like, if you're going to have exposition like this, I almost would rather it just be like, all right, we're going to throw away 30 seconds. Like this is just gonna, like you need this context and then enjoy the rest of the movie opposed to us like being lost the entire time or like having like this like clunkiness that um uh, that, that where you're just missing information you have to make these like leaps that you, are unnecessary well it's like i mean to, to bring in a film that i'm sure we're all familiar with uh the walk the uh the yeah. Robert <laughs> uh uh you know, the, the joseph gordon levitt film a, a film uh that i would say is plagued with voiceover <laughs> Yes, played yes, yes, yes. with narration. You know, you can you can have too much. Um, Absolutely. So C. C. Baxter is working at an insurance company in New York City. He's he is a, he is a tiny blip, and that you have this like gorgeous shot of like this 
office where he's just like one one person out of many people um it's a forced perspective office it's like they they built they they structured the office so that it's like modeled to have a forced perspective so it looks deeper than it is they had children wearing suits in the back of the shots, like on wow. small, yep, there was like smaller and smaller desks, and so they would just like get children and dress them up in suits. And they even had some mannequins where they even got small enough, mm-hmm. to like where they just had like puppeteers almost. Yeah, and this is something that I think that is so cool, right? Yeah, and it's a stunning thing that we just wouldn't see uh, happen today because of like how filmmaking, uh, no. how filmmaking has evolved. No, we um, and honestly, the, yeah, a CGI child in the back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, no, they still have a child working in the back. Yeah. It would just be computer generated. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and that opening shot is just so stunning. I feel like that is like really what uh, makes this, I mean, it's, it's such a perfect tone setter. Um, and it's something that like, uh, and not to get into the musical, I feel like, um, but like when you like look at the, because there wasn't a recording for us to watch, but like just looking at stills from the performances, the sets seem kind of sparse or like kind of minimalistic. But with uh, with all of the sets for the apartment, even though they are only a couple uh, different um, scenes to dress, they're so lavishly dressed. And like they like yeah. whether it's this office that goes and goes and goes literally, or even the apartment, like with the woodwork, the bent woodwork and. Um, the kitchen, all the details are so precise and like really make this movie again feel so lived in. And like you know who um, Baxter is just by Absolutely. the way he lives, opposed to having to have an un, un, uh, unnecessary voiceover or this uh, House of Cards uh, direct audience thing that we get in the musical. Um, <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> of course, that's the reference you choose. But yeah, no, we. But I mean, like, yes. and I guess, I guess, all sort of. I mean, again, this is this is musical talk, and we'll save most of this for later. But I guess yeah the interesting thing is you know obviously like looking at the two mediums you know yeah like in a film it's much easier than in a play to have this like yeah this huge office with a false perspective and like yeah children <laughs> sitting in the back and just like creating this illusion and like the only way that they can replicate that feeling for him in promises promises is for him to sing a song about it right like that's yes. how we get that feeling is him singing half his biggest life and that, that is, like, the way that they are using their medium to get that point across. Um, again, and it, if it works for you, if it doesn't work for you, that's 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 on your own terms. Either way, Cece Baxter has a little bit of a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, and I, I hate using this word, but <laughs> in the modern parlance, he's kind of a cuck. <laughs> I would, I would, I would say, and I, again, despicable term used by despicable people. But if you were like, if that was, if you were to assign him something, I guess that's, that's what it would be. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Sure. Uh, that's what the C stands. That's what one of the C stands <laughs> the two C's for. stand for. That. <laughs> yes, exactly. Ter- very terrible. Do not condone any of that. Uh, but yeah. So what what's essentially happening is uh, one thing led to another. And there are essentially four executives who are using his apartment uh, to cheat on their wives, essentially. So, like, uh, God, who are the characters? There's Kirkaby. I think Mr. Kirkaby is one of the earlier characters. Yes, um, uh, one starts with a D. Yeah, they got they got very very fun names. Yes, uh, yeah. Um, and what I, I, does this company do? Do we ever find a out life what insurance? Is? Yeah, life insurance. Oh, life yeah. insurance. Yes, that's right. But I, I do love that's kind of. I feel like that's kind of a joke of the whole thing. Is like what they don't actually sell anything or manufacture anything. They're just purely G men or like the yeah. people at desks that don't do anything. 
Uh, Dobish. Um, Dobish is Dobish. one of them. There we go. That's yes, what I was thinking great, of. Great names. Uh, um, and I will say that the screenplay, uh, Wilder uh, co-wrote it with IAL Diamond, who I wasn't really able to do a lot of research into, but whatever. Good initials. Uh, three initials? And then your last name is Diamond? Good on you. Yeah, you, yeah, you do. You go work in the pictures. Um, that <laughs> suck. Not, no. uh, not a, I'm going to put a moratorium on that word on the use of for the rest of the episode, <laughs> please. Um, but yeah, so essentially, yeah, so like we see an example of it early in the film. Uh, so like he has to wait outside his apartment while mm-hmm. like an executive and a woman who he is having an affair with uses Baxter's apartment. He just paces about. Um, he goes, I mean, he goes to Central Park. Great, it's right nearby. That's nice. Um, and I think what's what is also hilarious is that his neighbors uh, think that he's a fuckboy. <laughs> like they like they think he's the opposite. <laughs> they think he is a he's a player. Um, and they think he's just like having wild sex every night. Well, yeah, um, I, mean, I like yeah. Go ahead. I like when his friends like uh, you know whenever you die, make sure you donate your body to <laughs> yeah. science because you're so <laughs> alpha that, that you have to like we want to study your body. Your T levels are so high. We need to fucking like capture this and commodify this for like. Uh, yeah, no, and that's his, that's his neighbor, uh, Doctor Dreyfus, mm-hmm. who um, plays a pivotal role later. But I, but I love that you, we find out who he is and what he is interested in by his admiration for the physical prowess of Baxter <laughs> and this, this foil kind of uh, uh, conception of him. Um, yeah, but, Jack, but I think Jack, Jack Crucian is the actor who plays. And I, uh, I think Vegas. he's great. He's so, absolutely so great. Um, um, what were you going to say? Yeah. Well, I was going to say I think this is like a, an important distinction to make too is. When we start in the film, this is already kind of an ongoing kind of uh, agreement he has with some different executives uh, compared to the the musical. Um, like he, uh, we pick up kind of immediate res of him kind of sharing this uh, yes. his apartment with other people, opposed to it kind of we get this origin story, which again I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves. <laughs> but yeah, but, no, but yeah, we do. I do we appreciate do. the. Yeah. Yes, we do get we do get uh, uh, Joker style the the origin <laughs> story of how he how I was gonna say Cruella, but we've already talked about Cruella on another episode. <laughs> um, but yes, we we get sort of like the backstory in the musical. But yes, we are like you said, we are in media res, um, and then a second. I think Kirk. Yeah, it's Kirkaby and Dobish, like on the same nights. They're like. Um, oh, I got, like the second guy's like, I got to bring this woman over. She's just like Marilyn Monroe. And then you have an actor who's doing uh, this very funny Marilyn Monroe impression, which, yeah, of course, that's sort of the the meta text of some like it hot being the previous film. So that's pretty fun. Um, and then you get this beautiful shot of uh, CC Jack Lemmon sitting on this empty bench in the middle of Central Park. Mm-hmm. And just like, again, just like the loneliness and the emptiness of it all. And it's just like there are obviously like a lot of great filmmakers making great films today, but especially I feel like in studio filmmaking, you don't even get that kind of obvious shot anymore. Right. I feel like it's like such a beautiful, it's like such a beautiful, like obvious way of just using image to convey something about this man. Yeah, it's just like it's just using the, the the full frame essentially, and that's a, that's the thing. As we've kind of uh, gone more towards digital, our sensor sizes have gotten smaller, and so like the, our frames just can't be a certain size, even at yeah. though we're democratizing um, the cameras, which obviously I'm all for. It's how I'm able to make films now, um, but it does take away a little bit of the canvas that we're painting with. Uh, currently um but that being said even on the major studio scales where they have these full frame full sensor cameras they're not utilizing the same way and 
And in addition to what, what Wilder does, which I think is brilliant, is he slaps on these beautiful anamorphic lenses, making the, the frame even bigger. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how much we want to digress into lens talk. Um, <laughs> but well, but like a little bit. <laughs> However, it applies to the film, I sure, would say. Sure. Well, I guess uh, th- there are two basically types of lenses, anamorphic and spherical. Uh, oh, and wow. uh, spherical are basically like your normal type of lens that like you would like see like on your, your iPhone or like your normal like uh, shoot and point camera. Uh, and the anamorphic Eyeball. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Your eyeball. It's fairly spherical. Um, and then the anamorphic is instead of it being like a circle uh, um, inside, it actually is like more of like a, an oblique oval kind of shape. And so what that does is it creates this like squished image that in post you can then stretch out and give you even more perspective. Uh, and it creates these like really massive slash it, there's like some slight distortion you'll get on the, the, the side of the images, which you can even see in. Um, in the apartment like some of the columns yeah. instead of them being like straight up and down like they actually curved a little bit it just creates sure. this kind of otherworldliness i think um moonlight is another really great example of uh anamorphic photography and kind of gives this like dreamlike kind of uh uh aura to that film um and you, like, you can usually pick it out by that distortion or by like the the lens flares are usually more uh ovular in shape opposed to like those uh that rounded bouquet that you'll uh, that we've all seen at this point um yeah. But yeah, so I think by make, making that choice for anamorphic lenses, it just creates this even wider tapestry. It makes this make it just makes you think big screen, big movie. Love it. Um, to quote uh, Tom Cruise. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I just I, I when I'm watching this and specifically that shot you you called out or that opening shot of him working in the office, I just think, man, nobody makes pictures like this. Um, the only thing I can think of is kind of there will be blood with with the wide images and that. Um, and that's from like a, over a decade ago, but you know. So it's true. Like... It's two thousand eight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's yeah, and, and it's so yeah. Of course, like it's, it feels like such a silly thing to be like, ah, oh, they don't make movies like they used to, and it's like, like obviously there's still brilliant movies being made, but yeah, oh, I would say like especially on this scale. I would say that's sort of the thing, right? It's yeah. Like, and the amount of extras that like are involved in the office, well, whether they're children or adults, um, or puppets, yeah. or puppets, there's a lot of uh, bodies on set, like, which right now, like just you, I mean, obviously during the pandemic, you can't do, and they're like just using CGI crowds for everything filmed right now. But even we were moving that way over the last five or six years anyway. Um, I mean, I feel like, uh, I was listening to a Tracy Letts, uh, conversation where he was talking about Ford versus Ferrari. And he, at one point in that movie, gives a speech to all the, the Ford uh, laborers. And um, somebody asked, like, were there actually people on that day? He's like, there were like four or five people. And then Ooh. they just added a bunch of people in post. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's a weird thing for the actor to kind of work with, I feel like, in the process. But also visually, it just doesn't look the same when we have actual people and actual like imperfections of like an extra kind of moving in the background oddly or specifically. Um, like you can you can tell yeah. like you can tell Absolutely. when see when it's CG and when it's not real. Um, yeah. Moving forward. Um, again, again, I'm all about these digressions. I'm just I'm Wonderful. worried. I'm always worried <laughs> about us getting in the weeds of these things. Um, so we'll yeah, finish so- this before this episode comes out at some point. <laughs> Uh, there's a great scene the next morning. So yeah, so uh, Baxter wasn't able to get into his apartment. Um, he's now got a cold. Um, he's back in his apartment. He's back in the office the next day, all sniffly. Um, and he's got this great, beautiful moment of having to coordinate uh, with the four executives: uh, Dobish, Kirkby, Vanderhoff, and Eichelberger. Like my God, those like, names, beautiful. Uh, 
Uh, and, and it's like the thing of like, all right, well, can you do Thursday? And it's like, like Vanderhoff has to do Friday. Can you move to wet? It's very funny. Um, that, that bit, it's great. And it's just like, again, it's just showing the depths that Baxter's like, again, he's just like, well, this is going to like, he's so confident that this is going to get him somewhere that he's willing to sleep outside willing to go to work the next day when he's so sick like it's it's pathetic and sad but also just like and, and lemon pulls it off beautifully i think that's true i think it is pathetic and sad <laughs> but i do also think you see some organizational kind of skill like that lemon has oh, whether yeah. that i don't know maybe, maybe that isn't textual but i feel like you could then the performance like where even though he might be this uh this word we're not saying anymore he like there is a savviness that he operates with uh, like he has a goal and like he has like a um this is a tactic in which like he's he's getting what he wants still so like he doesn't feel such like as as a pushover as this character could be um which I which I think is really important for the for the Absolutely. film adaptation. Oh, and I will say we we skipped over this. There's actually a, a scene that I think really shows uh, CC as a character and one who I feel like a lot of us can relate to. It's between I think between Kirkaby and uh, Dobish, where he's watching TV and he's, uh, he's like, <laughs> he, he just he wants to watch Grand Hotel so bad and but he's like he can't he can't even sit what a cast uh but he <laughs> cannot sit through the commercials and so he's literally just like switching to like every other channel and every other channel's just got a western on it and he's like i don't want to watch that i don't want to watch that and then he goes back to grand hotel and they're like and when we we have our alternate sponsor and then he's just like fuck it no um, yeah it says a it just, lot it says a lot about him and it also shows that man you would i i don't know how you would do in the modern age of television my <laughs> guy well i also i don't know how it also speaks to like i i think in a lot of ways how little has changed we talked about this a little bit already but like even like the way media is presented to us like there is like it's just full of advertisements, even back then, as it is today. Um, you watch a YouTube video for like 30 seconds and there's eight commercials in there. It's very Blade Runner-y. Um, and that, that isn't a modern invention. Like we've been basically thrown with advertisements and like distractions and not actual like uh, art uh, since the beginning of uh, the yeah. commodification of it um, to the Greek theater. Um, we Once he goes back to the office the next day after he's sick... Uh, he runs into Fran, the elevator operator, uh, played by Shirley MacLaine. The lovely Shirley MacLaine. Lovely performance. Yes. Mm -hmm. Lovely, lovely performance. Uh, she has some questions. Rocking a they-them haircut. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely rocking that beautiful NB haircut. Operating heavy machinery. <laughs> I, Imagine if we still had elevator drivers. That would be cool. Right? I, I'd be yeah. fine with that job. Well, actually, it's probably pretty boring. You're just going up and down. Just going up day. and down, yeah. Well, and I think they used to be like specifically for like those types of elevators. There was a little bit more to it, I think, than just the button pushing. Um, so, side to side also. Exactly, exactly. Um <laughs> I also, maybe this is a good point to mention that she was 24 or 25 compared to yeah, Jack Lemmon's. I think 25. Wow. Compared to Jack Lemmon's 35, yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah. the age gap is pretty noticeable. Um, yeah. Uh, but, 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 we, but we meet her and she, 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 she's savvy and knows what she's doing and it's great. And I think it's a great character introduction of like her um, just going on her day to day. She's not, like, yeah. she's not just something I to be fond of her. And yeah, and she. I, I. I mean, I think Fran just as a character, great. 
Just like I think she's a character who has she understands the hell role that women play in society um but like is like is a but is like self-aware of it in like a really depressing way that sort of like Mm -hmm. comes to the forefront as the film goes on um and but then like again like she kind of like takes agency as well like obviously like she has help along the way from cc but like it in the end like we'll get to the end like i feel like she is i don't know she's she's the master of her destiny and she is she she's the one who like wants to have control of the situation as much as possible she i feel like she has a lot of power in her relationship absolutely with uh my goodness what is his name uh Uh, sherlock no uh it's something like that not sherlock though (laughs) It's not Sherlock. Uh, Sheldrake. Sheldrake, yes, yes, yes. Benedict Cumberbatch, um, Sheldrake. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I think in a lot of ways, she is the most, um, uh, she changes the most throughout the entire narrative, if you you want to say that, Mm -hmm. Um, where uh, uh, C.C. Baxter essentially kind of just like falls assward, kind of into this like romance, um, where uh, where, uh, Fran actually kind of makes the decision of like, oh, I am in the situation I do not like, leaves it for a better situation. Um, yeah. yeah, so I, yeah, I like looking at the movie more through her lens than I do uh, CC Baxter's. Um, but it's also fun to think of like uh, with a haircut, it's, it's, it feels like it's almost like the, the first instance of the manic pixie dream girl in a lot of ways. Sure. <laughs> like, the proto example of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's a definitely more reductive be- reading. Definitely, but... Yeah, definitely. I would say she definitely transcends that archetype. In a lot of ways, so. but I, but mm-hmm. I, I, I totally see that. Um, speaking of uh, uh, Sheldrake, played by uh, Fred McMurray, Jeff Sheldrake, the boss of the company, um, mm-hmm. who has heard about the the key passing of that's going around. Because yeah, that's what happens. Uh, Baxter gives his key uh, to whichever executive needs to use the apartment, and they just like leave it under the the mat outside his door. Um, but he's heard about this, and he's like, and he wants to get in on this game. And he's like, all right, well, you let me use your key, but no one else can use it. It's like, I, I'm, I'm the key guy. Like, you can't give it to any <laughs> of those other executives. Um, like, it's, it's all little secrets, which will become a song. Uh, <laughs> and then he's, but then, yeah, he's like, do you want tickets to see The Music Man? <laughs> and Susie's like, hell yeah, I'll go see The Music Man. Why not? Um, which apparently in, originally in the script, uh, it was South Pacific. <laughs> um, but then I forget, I forget if it was Billy or if it was someone else, but they were like, no one wants to see South Pacific. <laughs> I believe it was Billy. I said he went to go see it in New York and it was just like so bad. He was so bored. He's like, nobody would want to see this, this musical, <laughs> let alone take a date yeah, to mu- it. The Music Man's a, like two notches more livelier than south pacific <laughs> that is fair um <laughs> but yeah so then he asks uh yeah yeah he, he asks fran to go and fran's like well i have a i have a date tonight but cc's like well maybe you're after your date but little does he know that that date is with none other than sheldrake himself and so yes yeah, so we find out that sheldrake wants to use baxter's apartment to cheat on his wife with Fran, mm-hmm. and Fran is the apple of Cece's eyes. We got a, a classic love triangle. No, and, and then yeah, and this and the scene where uh, where Sheldrake asks Baxter for his key is the one where I was referencing before, where 
uh, Jack Lemon has this nasal spray bottle because he's sick and like something catches him off guard and he squeezes it and this beautiful strand of liquid just squirts out. And uh, yeah, apparently that was his choice. That was not in the script. He was not told to do that. Um, but it just, it's very funny and it looks so good. And so they decided to keep it. It's really beautiful. Um, it's yeah, and I think it's, it's really great. Yeah. And I, I think this is another instance of, you know, that lemon business, like uh, with the nasal spray. I, th- I think we also see something to, this was in the commentary, but like something that I think we should hang a hat on is the, um, it's like uh, something that Wilder tried to do in his script uh, that he picked up from Lubitsch, which is that, that mathematical uh, like equation he had where for the audience, like you do two plus two, but you don't tell them what you, but you let the audience say four. And so sure. with this whole like kind of conversation that um, Sheldrake and uh, CC have um, at no point uh, does he outwardly say like, Hey, we're going to exchange just the key for these tickets. It's all mm-hmm. very implied. And we have to see Baxter kind of do the math in his, in his uh, head. And I think that's yeah. a really great way of involving the audience um, and kind of creating this, this sense of mystery to the story that um, at the end of the day, again, we know what Baxter wants. We know he's going to concede, but it would, <laughs> but but to be smarter than the character is it's, it's a fun thing i think it's yeah billy wilder trusts the audience Absolutely. without talking without confusing them right like like he's yes. leaving the clues for us to figure out what's going on because he trusts that we will be able to pick up on those clues fancy Absolutely. that <laughs> fancy that happening yeah, in a major motion picture that's the thing I'm in something I'm marveling about was watching like these movies and watching kind of, um, you know, watching WandaVision recently, <laughs> if you want to digress sure. into that. Uh, I, and, I like, will happily always talk <laughs> about WandaVision. <laughs> yeah. And like the amount of like, so uh, there's not like, okay, let's use WandaVision for example, then yeah, there's like, fine. it's so, it's so didactic with like exactly what's going on and it's parsed out in a very, it was parsed out in such a, such a kind of um maybe this is harsh but like languine way like where we like ha- like really the form of it and maybe we'll we'll get into a little bit of form talk here too it's like this mini series didn't have to look like anything but for some reason we have these like full is it 40 or 60 minute episodes like where yeah, each yeah, close, is close to 45 minute episodes yeah where, yeah where each one is delineated into its own like cultural epoch like where, but like storytelling wise like the audience wants information that we're not getting. And so after you watch a couple episodes of that, you're just like, okay, I've watched three interesting like parodies, but I haven't like really been told a story. Um, well, that's the exact opposite of like what we're getting with like these more classical like forms of like where we can like have these breadcrumbs or, or more contemporaneously, like either we get like the whole recipe, like, uh, every single measurement and uh, then we have the whole like uh the recipe blog like where we hear this anecdote of someone going on like their their beach vacation and, and greece and like that's how they learned how to make this greek salad and now here's the recipe and like also here's a picture of me in greece and also here's the greek salad um so either we get that modern storytelling or we get um or we get this like again kind of like uh broken thing uh with wandavision like where we're getting pieces but we're not getting the whole picture and like or like maybe westworld is another great example of like where they're like holding things out so that way like because they don't trust the audience either to be patient enough to wait for the payoff or they don't trust you to put it together um well i think, I think well, that's the, really I, sad I, I, 
I, my personal gripe with WandaVision, a show that mm. I actually like a, like great parts of, but also have mm. great issue with, um, we are people are allowed to think things are fine. It does not have to be <laughs> the greatest yeah. series in the world or <laughs> the worst thing in the world. It is a series that has good things and has not great things. But my issue with WandaVision is that when it does give you the information, it gives it to you on a plate w- where everything is labeled and arrows are pointing yes. to you of what the thing is. I think it is once you do get the information it like it has to tell you what it is over and over and over again and it doesn't trust you be it to be able to figure things out it has to really really point out what is happening which again like i i think again like if you enjoy wandavision and i do enjoy wandavision on a week-to-week basis like that is fantastic i also don't think yeah i've watched every episode yeah exactly (laughs) i also don't think it is a huge ask to art to hope that the largest one of the largest entertainment companies in the world could maybe make more interesting commercial projects i don't know brand you had a brand are you watching one division do you have takes give us those takes uh no i mean much like uh much like it's okay not much like it's okay for things to be fine it's it's even more okay to not give a shit about any of that i like that so much yes um, I'd rather watch The Sopranos again, which I am. Yes, I just watched The Sopranos <laughs> for the first time with my partner, and it's it was oh, so lovely. Wow. Yes, congratulations. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel think it's one of the best television shows ever made. Truly, I, I think you're right. Um, yeah, it's just it's so lovely. Um, the last thing I do also want to say about One Division is that you that it just I I can't see anything. If a scene is set at night, I have no idea what's going on. The visual palette is just so land and the you know i mean the the whole color grading point has been like talked about like till the ends of the earth but it it really is abhorrent um and um, it's just (laughs) i I, I do a color grading anecdote real quick um i'll keep it brief i was once collaborating with somebody (laughs) and they had a connection into uh, i forget the i forget the post house who does color grading for the the marvel things Uh, But we were having coffee and he's like, I'm so excited. My next short might be colored by the same people who color the marble. He was like so excited about this. And I thought, why would you ever want your stuff to look like that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's all just white and like, yeah, no contrast. is about a witch. And a robot. It, the, the colors do a bright not red have to robot. be muted. A bright red. Why does he look? Why does all? Why is everything earth tones? Why is everything mud tones? Brighten yeah. it up, y'all. Um. She tries a Buick. <laughs> so, Fran, Fran and Sheldrake have a past history. <laughs> Uh, so it is. It is established that Fran and Sheldrake have a past. They have a history that they were previously. That this is them trying again, right? This is like <laughs> Fran being like Fran, the Fran's like. You said you were gonna leave your wife. You haven't left your wife. Like, what the fuck are you doing? And Sheldrake's just like, I'm go. I'm gonna leave her, baby. Don't <laughs> he doesn't. He does not sound like a a gangster, but whatever. Um, he's just like, baby. Like, don't worry. Like, I'm gonna leave my wife. Um, and Fran's just like, okay, like Fran is just like so set in this concept of like love, love isn't real. Like, mm-hmm. like, I don't believe in that as a concept. Um, and so she's like, fine, whatever. Like I, like I am, I am, f- that's, let's fucking try this. Why not? Um, yeah, yeah, and yeah. And then uh, she is not able to see the music man. And, and CC, CC doesn't even go in alone. I mean, like, I, I know it's not the best show in the world, but like, I don't know. Free tickets, go, exactly. Yeah, go, go, go! Watch 
watch 76 trombones, whatever. Couldn't you scalp? It was probably much easier to scalp them that day. Like, I imagine. Maybe, like 20 bucks or something. Yeah, pro- yeah, probably 20 bucks back in. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, either way, CC gets a promotion because now, now he's helping the boss uh, screw over his wife. Um, and then there's this uh, Christmas party. Uh, oh, and, th- and like in the promotion, like when uh, I think like Sheldrake's talking to Baxter uh, and mm-hmm. he has this mirror. He has like, he, he's like, uh, Baxter's like, oh, the your girl left the mirror at my apartment. And it's like this yes, uh, yes. very distinctive mirror uh, this, uh, with a, with a, a crack compact. in it. It's a compact. Thank you for the mm-hmm. actual thing that it was. Uh, it's a compact <laughs> with a crack in the mirror. Um, and he, he returns it to Sheldrake. We skip to a Christmas party. Um, and Baxter's still back. Obviously, Baxter like doesn't know what's going on, and he still mm-hmm. is like trying to make the moves uh, on Fran. Uh, and Fran just isn't. Oh, and is Fran? What? Why is Fran? Fran like isn't having it, right? She is. Uh, uh, God, I'm, I'm trying I to think remember. She's like, just working, and he convinces her to come into the party. She's just on the elevator. Yeah, oh, well, no, he, oh, no, he has a hat. Little... He has a hat. Uh, he has he's a very hat. proud of his yes. hat. Exactly. Oh no! <laughs> so, yeah, so, no so what happens is Fran Fran runs into uh, a uh, Sheldrick's secretary. Mm-hmm. And the secretary's like, oh, yeah, I know what you're up to. Like, like yeah. the secretary knows what's up and, like... Seemingly a past her, lover. Yeah, call, former, calls... Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and, yeah, she's like... Like, Sheldrake does this to all of the secretaries, like, does this to, like, so many women. Like, you're just, like, one in a line of people. Um, and so Fran, like, feels shitty, which, I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a shitty situation. She's dealing with this asshole, toxic person in a... And not only just like an asshole man, but an asshole man mm-hmm. in a huge position of power. Yeah, in the workplace. The, the, yeah, the dynamics are just like fucking disgusting. Um, and of course Baxter does knows nothing. Jack Jack Lemon plays a plays a fun drunk. He's a he's he's very good <laughs> at uh, putting together a fun drunk performance. Yeah, he's got that fun bowler hat. Um, and then yeah, Fran takes out her compact. Cece sees that there's a crack in it. Two and two together. Oh shit! And then he he heads out. Um, she has that so emo line of, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I like it because that's the way I feel, or I, it makes me look the way that I feel, or whatever. So yeah. emo. <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh, yeah again, that, going with the manic pixie dream girl thing. Yes, there is a. Uh... Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but, well, she also speaks... but she she delivers. She gives so him well. some headphones off of Victrola, and it's just playing like <laughs> Glenn Miller band, and she's like, "Listen to this; it'll change your life." Oh, sorry, Connie, you were going to say something. <laughs> no, yeah, I was just going to say, I think, like, like her jaded or, like, matter-of-fact, like, sense of love, I think it totally adds to her character and, like, makes you feel like, again, she's not, like, she's not being put upon by, Shel- like, um, Michelle Drake. Like, she knows that, like, this probably won't work out, but there might be a little bit fun to have or, like, there might be some resources for her to, like, experience or, like, um, yeah, it's, 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 I just like how much... I guess how clear eyed she is for the most part, which is why I think the dramatic turn that we're about to come up to was kind of shocking to me because even though she had like, she has these more emo tendencies, she does seem to be like, again, have this agency to her um, that even Lemon doesn't have. Um, because again, like you said, he plays a great drunk. He plays a great idiot. So he, he at, the, at those yeah. moments, like we're like, how can you not see what's going on? Like he, his smile makes you think, Oh, like this guy, they just doesn't quite get it. It's okay. But he's charming enough. So um, let's give him a promotion. <laughs> but then, yeah, he's he's very depressed. 
He goes to a bar. He mm-hmm. he. And again, uh, as uh, the, wonderful Bruce, the wonderful Bruce Block notes, you know, in the script, it's said that he takes the olives and he puts them in a fan. I'm like, great. I don't need to know, Bruce. I, I so can true. see. Listen to your own thoughts on voiceover and you don't have to tell me what I am seeing in the shot right now. Um, and then he runs into uh, Margie McDougal. The best character in the movie. <laughs> well, and we'll get, well, there's a lot that we can talk about with her regarding the <laughs> promises, promises as well. Uh, she's played by Hope Holiday. Um, this is a very a fun character. Her husband's in jail in Havana for whatever reason. <laughs> Who's a jo- he's a jockey, important context. Uh, yes, <laughs> very strange. Um, I will also use this point to say uh, the music in this film, the score is by Adolf Deutsch. Um, mm. Gorgeous score. Just that main yes. theme yes. is just stunning. Yeah, and um, I borrow that for the overture of, of Promises, Promises. And I realized that, like, as I was listening to the overture and overture, like, I, this, like, pops in a different way. I'm like, oh, this is just the score. <laughs> now yeah. we're hearing and again. I mean, yeah, but obviously, I was, yeah, we can just say now, like, musically, they're, they're both very different properties. Because obviously, Absolutely. like, Promises, Promises is it's fucking Burt Bacharach, which is just that very sort of, like, uh, easy listening style kind of thing. And this is just very much sort of just like a big, I wouldn't say like, like kind of like semi-grand orchestral score. Um, oh, this baby swells, yeah. <laughs> it swells <laughs> like a balloon. Exactly. Love it. Like Love a lovely it. romance. But yeah, so uh, Margie McDougal is hitting but not hitting on cc um it's very funny i love the straw paper the like she blows the straw paper on gonna use that one for sure (laughs) um and then we go but then while this is happening uh fran is at and this is yeah this is christmas eve night before christmas Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and fran is just like at, Fran and Sheldrake are at Cece's apartment and Fran is just like having a breakdown. She's just like, I, like, I, what are we doing? Like, what the hell are we doing? When are you going to leave your wife? Don't say it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And Sheldrake's like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. <laughs> uh, she gets him uh, a, a record, which conveniently, <laughs> I think one of my favorite things is conveniently, the song on the record is the theme of the apartment. <laughs> it's just, that's the song that it plays. <laughs> Um, and he gets her a hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah, fucking, yeah. eh, it's me wretched. <laughs> eh. The ultimate sign of money or of love is, is just like a cash from an aunt or an uncle. Fucking, oh god, what's that great line she has? Um, she's like, oh, like this is, uh, like you, like this is how much I'm worth or something. You know, like she's just like, oh, yeah. like you might as well sleep with me. This, like, this is how much I'm worth. Something along those. Terribly paraphrasing it, but either way, uh, Sheldrake's like, I gotta go to my family, um, I gotta get the train out there, and mm-hmm. Fran stays behind. It's been previously yeah. established in the film, again, like, it's, uh, Wilder's great about just, like, leaving these little breadcrumbs, uh, it's been previously established that CC is taking sleeping pills. Yes. And so, we know that they exist, um, so we even know how full the jar is or the, the pill jar is, which is great. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it, all the storytelling is so tight. Cause going back to the compact mirror, it's, it's, uh, we see everything is just so like the universe and all the molecules in it are just so well designed and compact. And then we talked about this a little bit with the set design, but like literally everything that pops up visually has some sort of significance in the story. Um, and we're not ever kind of just getting superfluous information. Um, 
It's just can this, I, like can this. I, can I can I make a hot take? Yeah, go for it. This this came to mind, and of course, we, yeah, we all we all have might be of a similar mind, but I'm gonna throw this out there. Is like Zemeckis an attempt at a contemporary Wilder, at least in oh. like story structure? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, you he know, does have that. Yeah, there's that horniness to his filmmaking, obviously, and then also <laughs> back to those classical strands. I think are both present in the wilder stuff I've seen. Yeah, um, but also, like Robert Zemeckis is also someone who like is great at comedy, is great at action, yeah. is great at drama. Um, Loves to imbue importance into like an object. Like yeah, yeah absolutely. Right? Is really good at like really good at like setting things up in the first act. And they're gonna pay off really, really well in the third act. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a that's a that's a good take. Hey, yeah, Bobby yeah, yeah. Z, Bobby Z, <laughs> Billy W. <laughs> Great. Great filmmakers. Um but either way, so yeah, so we've established Fran sees the sleeping pills and then we cut back to CC and uh Margie McDougal coming back home. Uh, and yeah, he's he's like, ah, oh, you know, they call me a sex pot. They're going to donate my body <laughs> for science. Uh, but then we see that Fran has taken the sleeping pills and is passed out uh, on the bed. Luckily, who lives next door? A doctor. Uh, Dr. Dr. Dreyfus. Dreyfus. He goes, who apparently uh, Wilder wanted Groucho Marx to play him. <laughs> Which would have been Very a Very different picture. Very different picture. Um, I do like when he comes in uh, and he's like, he points to Margie. He's like, her? And she's like, no, no, the other girl, the other girl. Um, again, like this fun, fun bits. But then like the, the film takes what some might consider a sharp turn into the dramatic. Because, yeah, you've got mm-hmm. this woman who's who's tried to kill herself. And pretty much like the next 10, 20 minutes take this sort of like, hey, let's try and help this girl who tried to kill herself narrative mm-hmm. um there's not a lot of comedy in it which i mean it's 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 hard to find the comedy in that you get like a few digs at baxter from dreyfus but really outside mm-hmm. of those it is it's pretty it's played pretty earnestly and it's played pretty straight and i th- i mean i think it handles that tonal balance really well um obviously yeah. you know, so your mileage may vary yeah, well, your, your pivot there makes me, th- now I'm thinking like Jonathan Demme and something wild and like that, like weird kind of like oh, sure, on a yeah. dime pivot um, that we get. Yeah, and I, and that's the thing is I don't know if I fully buy into the to the tonal shift. Um, and it's just because it does feel such a different, and it, it, everyone kind of has different relationships to suicide and depictions of suicide. Um, sure, sure. And I know for myself, I'm a, I, it's a little more sensitive uh, of a subject for me. And so... Yeah, and so uh, it feels a little trivial. That being that said, the direction is pretty earnest, like you're saying. So I feel like it's not. Uh, it, it, I didn't turn off uh, when I when I saw it, or I or I didn't, wasn't completely ejected. Like where, uh, like something like Midsummer. Um, I don't know if we've all seen that sure. film, but the way that handles suicide and like how aggressive it is, and I know it's kind of playing in like the horror patina, um, but it's still presents it in such a um, jarring and kind of shock factor way that honestly, like I don't care for that movie. Cause I couldn't even, I couldn't even sit through the movie entirely sure. and focus on it. Cause I was just so like KO'd in the first like five to 10 minutes um, by the use of, uh, of, of suicide in that, in that film. I think that's a completely fair point. Yeah. Um, I know quick, ten, quick side points <laughs> that I know, that I, I know, I know Ari Aster just like, he's, he, 
isn't it kind of like he didn't want to make horror movies, right? He's just like, he, yeah, he, like he, he's just using horror. He's like, I know horror movies are really easy to get funded because they are just something that can get made really cheaply and they make a lot of money. And so he's kind of just like using horror as a sort of a genre sort of like workaround to make the kind of movies he wants to make. So I'm excited for when, now that he's got like Hereditary and Midsommar under his belt, what now that he's got, got that blank check, uh, just <laughs> like what, what kind of movies uh, he, he will make now. He's making that Joaquin yeah. Phoenix movie, right? I, I believe With, so. Uh, Safety brother, right? I think so. Is, Is it Benny? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to see how he, how he now that he has this kind of horror monkey off his back, he can hopefully have a little bit more dexterity. Um, because I think that's also the issue with Midsummer is like it just like you could use other things to get this effect that uh, uh, and create the shock. Um, but yeah, like oh, his favorite. Oh, go ahead. Oh no, I was I was gonna try and move us back to the back to oh, the sure. movie yeah, because well, we have only... because we yeah. need to get the promises. <laughs> We'll get there, but like Ari Aster's favorite the score, that's Ari, exactly. That's true. Ari Aster's favorite, um, his favorite director is Bergman, and so I think that's a great, it's a great thing to oh, know. It's like, yeah, that's he, fascinating. He, he, I think it was the A twenty four podcast, or an I know, I don't, I don't think it's, it's it's him and Robert Eggers. Like sometimes we qualify things we already know, and, uh, and I do that a lot. Um, so he did a podcast with Eggers, and like it was just them talking about Bergman for um, most of the time. I think Eggers was a little bit more. Uh, dilettant of like trying to keep it like all through the lens of Bergman uh, and Ari Aster's was a little bit more kind of conversational with the whole talk but they just talked about how like both of them are attracted to these family dramas um of yesteryear that just don't get made in the same way so they play with this this milieu that um that it does exist right now absolutely um I, I will say uh there there are some uh, stage combat friends of mine who would probably mm. be really put off by the way that Dreyfus <laughs> slaps Fran right in the <laughs> oh my face. God. Yeah, they're Is he a real they're, doctor. They're actual yeah. slaps too. Yeah, they got Groucho Marx doing that. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. I yeah. mean, like, I guess, I guess within the context of the film, it works. It looks fucking mm. painful. I feel bad for Shirley MacLaine <laughs> back yeah. in 1960 or 1959 or whenever they filmed this. Um... Either way, um, uh, Dreyfus is like, God, mm -hmm. CC, you got, you got to be a mensch. There's a yeah. lot of beautiful, again, Billy Wilde is Jewish. There's a beautiful Jewish energy to this film as well, which I always appreciate. Um, the landlord, the landlady uses the phrase Michigas earlier <laughs> in the film, which I was just like, oh, my heart, I'm back on Long Island. Uh, it's great. <laughs> um, either way, but yeah, so they, uh, they nurse Fran back to health. Uh, Sheldrake, like, doesn't, like, he kind of cares, but, like, not really. It's well, the like, thing is, he is he calls him Christmas Day, uh, because this is yeah. all happening Christmas Eve, and so Sheldrake is a little, honestly, he's put off on this phone call, because he's like, why would you call my house on Christmas Day when I'm with my family? Like, you're going to yeah. take care of this for me, aren't you, uh, C.C. Baxter? And so like, there's, like, this whole, like, new menacing side of Sheldrake that we're getting of like, not only is this guy a monster for preying upon a someone, uh, one of his, one of his workers, and then also like treating her flippantly, but also now he is completely speaking of her as like a problem that needs to be yeah. um, like, like going back to the Sopranos, like, like she needs to be like, fix the problem. Um, it's not, it's not a matter of humanity at all. Absolutely. Um, Mrs. Dreyfus comes in, brings, brings friend, nice, nice meal to make her better 
Um, she's she tries to comfort her. Um, we also find out that Fran has been living right with her with her brother-in-law, with her sister yes. and her brother-in-law. Um, and the brother-in-law comes uh, comes into town looking for a. He is played by a character actor with maybe my favorite actor name of all time, <laughs> a lovely man named Johnny Seven. <laughs> just like just a perfect name too. for an actor. Just a mm. brilliant name for an actor, Johnny Seven. <laughs> uh, just some tough guy. Just some tough guy looking for his sister-in-law. And then yeah, so the four executives are like, "Well, we don't give a shit about Baxter anymore." Oh yeah, and uh, I think Dobish like comes over to the apartment uh, mm-hmm. because like they had previously said that he could. And then he spots Fran sleeping in the bed, and so he's like, "Oh well, mm-hmm. I know where she, where she is." And so he, they tell Johnny Seven where to go. Uh, Johnny Seven comes to the apartment, uh, knocks out Jack Lemon's lights, um, and but Fran's like, "Yeah, let's." I I took. Fran admits it. She's like, "I took sleeping pills, and CC mm-hmm. helped me get better." Uh, but so that so as to not to out the boss or to not out that Fran's been sleeping with her boss, uh, CC is like, "I'm the one. I I I fucked her over," and so he gets clocked in the face. Um, a noble mm-hmm. act, if there ever was one. Um, <laughs> well, and then, then also in this instance, like that's like that, that seemingly wasn't real though. So we have Shirley MacLaine <laughs> getting the slaps <laughs> moments earlier, but Shirley's um, like, "No, thank you." Oh, and and we also uh, there's like a scene earlier where Fran and uh, CC teaches Fran how to play gin rummy. So that is an yeah. established thing that they play gin rummy. And then we also and then CC also reveals that he tried to kill himself as well. He's like, "I know where you're coming <laughs> from," and he tells this admittedly very silly story about mm. how he tried to shoot himself but then shot himself in the knee and i was just like did you <laughs> walking around. you seem to be walking fine my dude if you like shot your that was a big gun if you shot yourself in the knee yeah. and this was semi and like and like the woman that he was pining after sends him a fruitcake every christmas it's very funny it's very cute um so yeah, then, so now you have me thinking about the practicality of like uh, of like physical therapy back in the '60s. Like he has to have like yeah, a limp or knows? something. <laughs> There's no way he's a sad child. Again, like, and I get it. Like it's a it's a fucking movie. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, but either way, so now Baxter has been promoted to an ex- like a big old top executive, um, and his office is like right next to Sheldrake's, and Sheldrake's secretary, um, has just like had enough, and she has told Sheldrake's wife about everything. And so, yeah, Baxter is like, I'm going to go to Sheldrake and I'm going to tell him you don't have to worry about Fran anymore. Like, she's not your problem. And then Sheldrake's right, like, Baxter, you don't have to worry about Fran anymore. She's not your problem because uh, I'm getting divorced. Uh, <laughs> well, but, because the receptionist is uh, his. Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, she went. She went ahead and like t- this called uh, uh, Sheldrake's wife and basically outed him. And yep. so it's not like he's actually uh, leaving. Uh, leaving no, his no, wife on the up and up. Not of his own volition. Absolutely <laughs> no, 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 not. No. He, he's just like, well, blah, 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 blah. that's the way the that, that's where it crumbles. Cookie wise. Exactly. Great line. Great line. Just True. a lovely, yeah. fun bit of dialogue. Um, but then Cece's like, you know what? Fuck this. You can't have my apartment anymore. I quit. Adios, goodbye. Um, mm-hmm. So he's got, he's done. He's like, I'm I'm not letting people step on me anymore. And he's and he's like, I don't know. And then, so he moves out. He's like, this apartment is just like 
It's tainted. It's probably fucking messy as well. I don't think these executives True. clean up after themselves. Um, I would not want to like turn on a blue light in that apartment. <laughs> is all I'm gonna say. It's probably gross. Can't they um, get a hotel? Is this the point to like bring this up? Is there what is stopping these <laughs> people? From renting a hotel in New York City. Well, they're yeah, they're cheapskates. Like, they're absolute <laughs> fucking cheapskates. I think there's like exposition in the, the musical saying like like a normal, a, a dame you couldn't take to a hotel. Like a respectable dame wouldn't go to a hotel with a Yeah, guy, there's a whole, a fella. I mean, there's a whole fucking song about it. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that the four of them sing. But either way, so he's like, I quit and I gotta move out of this apartment. Um, sayonara, uh, Dr. Dreyfus. Um, and, and, and also, uh, Dobich, when he did try to stay at the apartment uh, a few days before he brought over a bottle of champagne and he leaves it and again there's these beautiful like mm-hmm. these pieces these crumbs that are left that are going to be picked up later um it's new year's eve sheldrake and fran are having uh, a nice dinner and mm-hmm. uh sheldrake just like let slip that like oh yeah no we can't go to baxter's like he said that he that i couldn't bring you over there uh, and Fran is just like so affected by this. She's like, "Oh shit!" Like he loves me, mm-hmm. and he and so she runs out. Uh, the the theme, sw- like you said, it swells beautifully. Um, she runs up the stairs. She hears a bang, but it ain't a gun. It's that champagne bottle. Champagne baby. Eve, baby. Um, and she's like, "Let's play gin rummy." And then uh, Cece says, I love you, Fran. Or, or what, what's her last name? Uh, 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 Miss Kubelik. Ms. Kubelik. Yeah, Kubelik. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love you, Miss Kubelik. And she says, shut up and deal. Shut up and deal. I mean, again, the year beautiful. before. Another the year good be- last line. Yeah. I was going to say, the year before, nobody's perfect. This <laughs> year, shut up and deal. Just yeah. if, if anyone knows how to end a film, Billy, Billy W., yeah, um, say it. Yeah, GTFO. Oh, Um <laughs> This film won Best Picture at the Oscars. Yeah. Crazy um, to think about now. It won Best Picture. Yeah. It won Best Director. Um, it won Best Screenplay, Best Art Direction, and Best Editing. Um, none of the actors won, which I was kind of sad to see. Um, yeah, I feel like Lemons. Uh, I, no, no, I honestly don't know what else was nominated that year, but Lemons is so great. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, Lemon and Shirley and then uh, Dreyfus, Jack Crucian, uh were nominated. Mm-hmm. Crucian, Jack Crucian. Uh, I'll tell you. Uh, so Jack Crucian oh, lost wonderful. to Peter Ustinov in Spartacus. Oh, yeah. Nice um, picture. <laughs> yep. Uh, Shirley MacLaine lost to Elizabeth Taylor in a picture called Butterfield 8. Hmm. And Jack Lemon lost to uh, Burt Lancaster in a film called Elmer Gantry. Um, Never yeah, heard of I it. mean, the, that's the thing. The, the films that the apartment <laughs> was up against for Best Picture yeah. The Alamo, Elma Gantry, Sons and Lovers, The Sundowners. Interesting. Interesting. I don't know any of those movies. Yeah, no, no, no. And I feel like the part of it. The Alamo is John Wayne, I think, right? Yeah, the Alamo I is John so. Wayne. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and it is interesting that, like, because I feel like the, the apartment has become, like, this um, this reference and. Uh, like partly because the content but i also feel like within like film culture like there's this idea of like people i feel like um this is someone from uh of fantasy from the ringer who does the criticism there like he talks about like how like um 
it's one of the movies that holds up best from like uh, the time period. And so I feel like yeah. within film culture, like there's this idea that the apartment transcends this things of being time stamped. Um, and it is, yeah, it's just, it's just, yeah, it's, it's odd that it, the how, how it resonates, I think is really, it's the specifics. And then that's how we are able to like still watch it and like watch through again, like these things that kind of are more elemental and maybe more of the time, but like, it's the specifics of, uh, a Wilder's dialogue and the set dressing and all the all the visual language that we're getting that makes it feel a little more contemporaneous. Um, yeah, uh, it's a great movie. It is like yeah. I said, it's probably gonna probably I would say like top five movies that we will ever cover on this on this podcast. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> With um, uh, uh, the Ingmar Bergman, we already did. Yeah, Ooh, I would say Smells of a Summer Night. night. Great movie. Oh, horny. okay. Uh, also, another Except movie with a, with a horny energy. Uh, <laughs> very good. And Shrek's um, pretty horny, too. Shrek's a horny motherfucker. Absolutely. <laughs> but speaking of horny motherfuckers, Promises, Promises. Uh, the stage adaptation yes. of The Apartment. So like I said, rule number one, change change the name. I think it's just like <laughs> you were... You were even and that's the thing. Even though promises, promises, I would argue, like plot for plot, it's it's pretty one to one, right? Like so, like mm-hmm. we, I, I sent the script around to everyone because yeah, there isn't yes. really a a filmed version of this that could be watched. Um, mm-hmm. But we were, I was able to get my hands on the script and sent that around. Uh, I'll talk about the writers for a second. Uh, so the script is by Neil Simon. Um, we all know Neil Simon, uh, prolific playwright. Uh, screenwriter, comedian, wrote on the wrote around the on the Phil Silver show. He's uh, he was one of those. I don't Sounds know. familiar. Yeah, but yeah, uh, prolific. Yeah, funny man. Yeah, f- funny man. Uh, yes, he did right on the Phil Silver show. I did not bring that. I did not lie. <laughs> uh, which is always great. Uh, looking at sort of his career, uh, this was like before he'd written like. Uh, I mean, th- this was like right after. Uh, like Barefoot in the Park and The Odd Couple, uh, Plaza Suite. So like he he because he was already like an established playwright, and he was mm-hmm. also like an established musical writer as well. At this point, mm-hmm. he'd already written uh, Little Me, and a few years earlier, he had written I'll, I'll give it away. What I believe <laughs> is the first movie to musical adaptation, Sweet Charity, mm-hmm. which is based on Fellini's Knights of Cabiria. I did not know this. This is all yeah, fun context. I believe okay. that's 1966. I believe that is the earliest example I can find of a film adapted for the stage. Um, mm. I'm not going to stake that claim because maybe <laughs> I'll find something else, but in my records, and that'll, that'll be coming up in, a, in another season for another time. Uh, but he would go on to write other uh, book for other musicals, including They're Playing Our Song and The Goodbye Girl, which we will also cover on this podcast at some point. Um, so yeah, and, and yeah, I mean, his, I think he is similar to Hugh Wheeler, uh, from, uh, who adapted Smiles of a Summer Night to a Little Night Music. I feel like Neil Simon does a great job of both, like, story and plot-wise, pretty much it's the same show. Like, that's why we're not mm-hmm. going to do a summary. Like, they don't really deviate from the plot too much. But also, like, you know, he writes, he doesn't just copy and paste dialogue from Wilder's script. Wilder and Diamond script, like for the most part, a lot. I mean, there's obviously a lot of lines that are the same, um, mm-hmm. but he he does come up with 
a, a mostly original take uh, just on the dialogue itself. I feel like it is a much, much more of a musical comedy structure and a musical mm. comedy dialogue. Um, because I mean, obviously, yeah, you're you're in a theater. You want to sort of that's you want to have more of that like borscht belty kind of humor, mm-hmm. uh, especially well, in yeah. the second act. With, well, even uh, the titular Martin phrase Dupont. "promises, promises." It's not like I, I don't remember that being anywhere in like the. I don't. I yeah. was I, yeah. I was try, I had my ears out for it in the original <laughs> film. Yeah, no, that is that is pulled from whole cloth for the purposes exactly uh, of this, which is fascinating, right? It's just like yeah. 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 I think this part probably becomes, again, with a decision I don't love narratively, like where we kind of get this origin story of like how this kind of whole racket begins for C.C. Baxter. I think it's just kind yeah. of unnecessary um, for the for this stage or in telling the story. Um, but we get it. Nonetheless, we need to. Yeah, it's what we got. Um, yeah. But I think that what we do get with that is um, uh, it just with the, with the dialogue that promises, promises. Uh, we get we get a sense of like uh, C.C. Baxter wanting or like kind of being more uh, with the, with that device is basically he's less savvy um, because like, again, we have to see him put it all together from the beginning opposed to yeah. like just kind of already operating, um, operating the machinery. And so we see him basically out on his, um, we see him out on his luck trying to be like trying to get people to give him the, this promotion because they've been promising it to him for weeks now um, since yeah. the inception of this whole thing. And so again, this, this idea that like it makes him a little less um a little less savvy a little less of a i guess a little less agency to his character and instead of like kind of operating with ambition he's going around trying to get people to fulfill these promises um which i think is like an important character change i i mean even the, just the phrase promises promises like there's a i mean there's a rhythm to it absolutely like, yeah. just, I mean, and so i, I so i want to talk about for me what I think is the greatest success of this show is mm. these songs, is these fucking <laughs> Burt Bacharach, Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Oh, yeah. Okay, right. So obviously, like, everyone's musical tastes are different. And I feel like music is just like something that, like, is one, is both a great unifier, but I also feel like, like, I don't know, it's, I feel like it's such a subjective thing from person to person, like what your musical tastes are. For me, like Burt Bacharach, like right in my heart. Like I like mm. that kind of music, that kind of like jazzy, like complex chords and like time structure. Like I am all about that. Like I listen to this score and I am just so in my feelings, just like so in a happy place. Um, it's just so beautiful. Like so, Burt Bacharach and Hal David, uh, frequent collaborators. Um, you know them. You know their music. They wrote <laughs> "Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head." They wrote a "Say a Little Prayer for You." House is not a home. That's what friends are for. Um, just again, just like prolific pop songwriters, uh, like a uh, uh, legendary collaboration with uh, Dionne Warwick, uh, who would go <laughs> on to cover a lot of the songs from this show and they would become mm-hmm. these like huge hits and See, that... i thought it came out before the musical her album her album her promises promises album yeah for some That's reason that's wild it came out right before i think i mean i think it was like released and like made to build hype for it i i, some sort of I like just synergy hold on we just also note that like an an a newly uh, Twitter all star, uh, Dionne War. Warwick. Oh yeah, she is pretty good too. <laughs> she is she is commanding uh, the hell sites that is Twitter um, really well, really beautifully. Uh, it, yeah, it really earlier is. in the year, 
This is according to Wikipedia. Wow. There they, we go. She released it like before the musical premiered and it built a lot of hype and went to a bunch bunch number one and then I guess the cast album did too and won a bunch of Grammys. Well, yeah, the cost album well, the cost album won the Grammy. Yeah. Um, wow. Again, like I just it's so funny, sort of tangentially related. Um, I don't know if either of you are on TikTok, um, the, the <laughs> popular uh, social media app TikTok. Uh, <laughs> sounds so fucking old. Um, but no, um, I, there I'm was not, this, I'll like, say that. There was this thing that was going around, like on like the music side of TikTok, where people were like arguing about what time signature "Hey Ya" was in. Uh, mm. You know the song "Hey Ya." Um, Outcast, yeah. Outcast. Yeah. yeah th- thank you. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so they were like, "Oh, it's like it's so weird because it's in eleven four, and it's like it's not in eleven four. It's in four four, and it changes <laughs> to two four for like one measure." Um, mm-hmm. And I'm like, "These motherfuckers would have a field day with Burt Bacharach. This guy changes <laughs> from like like three quarter time to two four to five four. This guy's going all over the place. You don't even know." <laughs> you, you, you think Outcast is throwing you for a loop? <laughs> Listen to fucking "I'll Never Fall in Love Again." Um, but yeah, I, I just, I, 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 God, I will. I, Bran, you texted me last week that this song like was making you feel nostalgic. Mm. Yeah, it was making me feel nostalgic for uh, <laughs> redacted piano bar. Oh, that's it. You'll, you'll bleep. You'll bleep uh, that. Here, out. I'll bleep yes. that. Yeah, it's, it was making me feel nostalgic for the uh, the cabaret bar I've worked at a lot, um, or for many years, because uh, Burt Bacharach is very popular in the piano bar half, and especially mm. um, there was a performer who used to do Friday nights, and um, the early part of Friday nights that would do a huge Bacharach medley, you know, oh, wow. like a 10, 15 minute medley, and it had a lot of the songs from this show, um, but uh, yeah, I'll never fall in love again. Always makes me think of that place and a lot of those performers. And also, I feel like that I feel like that was one that my grandma had on like a track when I was growing sure. up. Sure. Mm-hmm. And I think what love I it. what I love about so I mean, but but Backrack, uh, Backrack and David's score for hit for this in general is I think they've they've spoken about how they didn't like they didn't want to write a Broadway score. They're like we're gonna write our songs. Mm. Like and you I mean you get that a little bit. You get. Because this is sort of, this is where Broadway and the popular culture are starting to diverge. Obviously, I mean, like, freaking Dionne Warwick releases an album of songs from the show, so they're still pretty in tune. But definitely, like, mm-hmm. 70s, and especially in the 80s, like, just, like, mainstream pop culture goes off in one direction. And mainstream musical theater and Broadway pretty much stays in the lane that it's in. And that's sort of where the split happens. So there hasn't, and I would say outside of like fucking Hamilton, uh, which (laughs) whatever thoughts you have on that, um, there hasn't really been a huge effort of bringing either like bringing mainstream sensibilities to Broadway or Broadway shifting towards mainstream sensibilities. Um, Like, and like you have pop stars like who like, you have freaking like Sarah Bareilles like coming to write the score for Waitress, mm-hmm. but again, like some of the like some of those songs, especially like she used to be mine, definitely are like oh that's a Sarah Bareilles song. But I feel like a mm-hmm. lot of that I feel like a lot of times, and I'm sure we'll get into this in other shows that we do, rather than like a songwriter wanting to like bring their style to Broadway, it's a songwriter going I want to try and write a Broadway score, 
Like, I want to mm. try and flex my muscles and try and write what a musical theater song should sound like. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, yeah. do, you do you. And that's what, like, obviously, like, 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 sort of like I just started this off with. Like, Backrack and David, that was the sound of the time. So they're already, like, in a place where, like, it, it sort of made sense to sort of bring that. And, and that, I think that's just why the score works so well. Like, they're not... I mean, this was the same year as, like, 1776 on Broadway. And so, like, <laughs> if, like if you want, like, a comparison of sounds that will happen... Like, they're not, they're not trying to write a Rodgers and Hammerstein score. They're trying... They are writing their thing that they know how to do. And I think that is both just, like, why the songs are just good and also, like, why... I mean, I can make the argument that you would listen to this song... Out, you can listen to this oh, album yeah. outside of the context of the show and arguably get more enjoyment from it than being in the theater watching Promises, Promises. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all, like, really wonderful context for me because, again, I, I feel like such a uh, neophyte when it comes to musical theater. So um, all this history is very helpful for me. I'm sure, I'm sure it's helpful <laughs> for some of the listeners as well. Um, but, yeah, and that's I think there's something so important of, like, when you speak to, like, I think this is a big thing today is like where people are trying to do interpretations uh, of things that already exist. And there's very little of like people just kind of creating things uh, through their own perspective. Um, and so we see a lot of people trying to make these homages and that's kind of like the vibe I'm getting from as you talk about musical theater, it's like, Oh, I want to make this reference because we live in this post-modernity landscape where we have everything on Google, but yeah. like, instead we just need like, okay, you can have all those references those are all fine and dandy but like how about you just like go lock yourself in a room for five hours and like see what song you write um from that and like that idiosyncratic thing is way more interesting than mm -hmm. any allusion to something else that i don't know i, I at least that's that's my opinion yeah but so you know what makes this music special yeah yeah and i think what's and again because it's just like backrack and david just like writing the score because I, I think, again, like I knew about, pro I knew about Promises, Promises before I knew about The Apartment. I think mm -hmm. just because, be yeah, me too. And I think just because, I mean, like I said, because the songs are so distinct from the, the Adolf Deutsch score, and, mm -hmm. and even just because it has a different name, like I'm just like, yeah, I think it is just like we've talked about, I think there's a lot of comparisons with alumni music, just at least with context. It's just like you can, you can absolutely enjoy promises promises without being like oh i wish i'd seen the apartment i bet i would i bet i would enjoy this a lot more um if i if i knew that movie you don't have to i absolutely mm. don't think you have to um so to, just to dig in this so we'll just go through i'm just gonna take us through the songs uh song the score song by song um we can talk a little bit about productions original production revival production because um, mm -hmm. yeah both those albums I, I i listen to both of them um and I listen Yo. to both as well. Yeah. Yeah. That, I just got to say, that overture knocks me out every yeah. single time. Those Jonathan Tunick orchestrations. Sondheim, Stephen, uh, Stephen Joshua Sondheim, <laughs> like, heard this score. I think maybe he went even to see this show and was like, Jonathan Tunick, you're doing company. And you can hit, mm -hmm. like, I feel like if you, you listen. You hear it for Absolutely. Sure. Like, if you listen to company, like, you're like, oh, it's like it's a one-to-one -one, sort of like oh that that path is just so click connor have you listened Even to like company the guitar tuning i haven't no yeah. of company mm. is in promises promises everywhere but also like, I, I, have, I like the, I, the female backing the female backup singers as well are present mm -hmm. in the original company 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have seen the uh, documentary now a parody of of company though. But yeah, but, <laughs> even, but even from that, right, you can sort of like yeah. see that you can kind of get that sort of distinctive like oh, the, how the instrumentation works, how the sound yes. works. Absolutely. Um, oh, you, you listen, listen to the original cast album of company yeah and i believe criterion has the has like some sort of uh they have have the documentary they have original cast album company Um, wonderful i'll watch that then we love we love a da pennebaker um overture is great and then yeah so like i alluded to an hour ago or whatever the hell uh, (laughs) we were talking about the beginning of the apartment yeah so like i said we we cannot replicate this huge false perspective set so we have mm-hmm. to get that feeling across in this song, Half As Big As Life. Um, and so I will say, original production, starred Lumiere himself, Jerry Orbach, <laughs> uh, as CeCe Baxter, who they call Chuck in the musical, right? I believe so, yeah. They, they don't really call him CeCe, they call him Chuck, which, okay, sure, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> UDU show. Um <laughs> That guy, what a voice. What a... I mean, okay, like, very different... I feel like... So, yes, in the original, he was played by Jerry Orbach, and in the revival, uh, Sean Hayes played him. And it's... I feel Mm -hmm. it's so funny, because I feel like Sean Hayes is like... Yeah, that... Like, you're like, yeah, that's the kind of character actor that would make sense for this character. But, -hmm. like, Jerry Orbach, just, like, as a singer, I'm just like, dude, that... That voice, that booming gravitas, I'm just like, that ties this... That just, like elevates this score so beautifully um mm-hmm. i my, my wife and i were talking were talking about uh like well who would we want to see uh, if if and when they make the inevitable either revival <laughs> or movie adaptation of promises promises who would we want to see and of course uh we both landed on uh taron edgerton Oh, okay. I, I think he's got <laughs> <laughs> an emphatic endorsement from Fran. Uh, no, he, I think he's got both the gravitas and the goofiness to play it off. Okay, yeah, I can kind of see this. Yeah, and yeah, he yeah. can sing, and he's a cutie. Yeah, that's a no, that's no, a no question in that. But either way, so uh, he sings half as big as life. Fran has been moved from the elevator to the cafeteria. <laughs> yes. Which I guess, yeah, like, I guess, yeah, you don't want to have all these scenes in an elevator. It's kind of weird to put on stage. Sure, I get it, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I do. I, and I mean, I spent a lot of time in the service industry and like, I, I no shame to anybody who takes orders. I, I, I did it for over a decade. Um, but like, there does feel like there's some sort of like kind of downgrading or like some sort of like, wedging her more into a trope as a waitress opposed to being like this mechanic of sorts um, that you get in the, in the adaptation. And again, like, like, as you said, I think there might be a more practical thing than a story thing, but it is hard to like say to reconcile, I guess, uh, when, when vocation. I mean, that's that's the tough thing, right? It's like, I probably a lot of these things are for practicality, but then yeah, they, without you really real and maybe that's like what they're thinking about where they're like oh well we know fran from the movie and so her character is gonna move with her and it's like it's not though like you're like you think that because you love the apartment but by (laughs) even like that one little swivel of like how she operates within the insurance company yeah arguably it changes a lot about who she is Um, absolutely but yes like you said uh number one uh a Chuck, Chuck Baxter, we'll call him Baxter. Baxter has this <laughs> device where he talks to the audience, uh, House of Cards yes. style. Yes, um, oh my gosh. 
it's it's not the best. It's it, it, just, it is what yeah. it is. I don't know. It's a strange device, and I I get it to like the, for the economy of just like trying to get information across that maybe otherwise you couldn't. Because again, like uh, you mm-hmm. could, there's there's thing, again there's there's films and fi- there's things in film that you can get across through framing through shot composition that are just harder to get across in theater, right? Because mm-hmm. you're working on a larger scale, you're working in an expansive medium where you can only focus an audience's attention so much. So sometimes you do really mm-hmm. have to have the telegraph nonsense across by literally having your main character <laughs> say it to the audience. Um, mm-hmm. Which again, your mileage may vary. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, we kind of get the the origin story of how this whole Michigas uh, got started. <laughs> He's at a bar called the Grapes of Wrath, whatever, fun fun type, <laughs> fun, fun pun. And that's where the nonsense begins. He sings this song, uh, upstairs, two flats up, ba 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 da ba. Okay, like these, they do sound like songs that you would listen to in an elevator, and I'm fine with it. It's my mm-hmm. jam. Um, but yeah, so he, he sings the song about the business that he's up to, trading keys. Um, he goes, he goes, we actually get a new location, right? He goes to a doctor's office mm-hmm. and, uh, because he's sick and he runs into Fran there. And then we sort of get an, uh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's just because it's a musical and, and they give Fran more opportunities to sing about herself as a character. Like, I, 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 it's interesting. Like one could make the argument that they flesh her out more in the stage adaptation than mm-hmm. in the original film. Just again, like like I said, just because they're like they what they maybe they wanted to give Jill O'Hara more to do, the original mm-hmm. actor who played Fran. Um but I mean yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I think this is actually in and I know we've I don't know if we've re- referenced it by by name since we started recording, but this is something they mentioned up like check it recently on an episode. Like sometimes like when people are trying to write characters to like be less uh more fleshed out they actually end up like they end up making it more two dimensional by giving sure. too much information. And what that does is it creates this character. Um, it takes away the mystery in the sense of like, yeah, it just, it, it just takes away any sense that um, they could be anything more than what their actions are. Um, right. Yeah. And so by fleshing her out more, you actually get less of a, she becomes less, uh, less pathetic and also less, uh, less universal. For sure. I, I do like, I mean, I, I still like her songs that they give her. Like, you'll think yes, of song, yeah. you'll think of someone as the very sweet sort of comedic song that she sings uh, with Baxter. It's a good one. Um, we get uh, Our Little Secret, which is uh, Sheldrake and Baxter uh, in the office. Um, again, like another cute little uh, bonding moment between our protagonist and our antagonist. Um, and then we get maybe what is the biggest plot change in the musical. Instead of giving him giving Baxter tickets to see the Music Man, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't, I don't think the I don't think the Music Man was playing at the same time. But maybe they were like, we don't want to, we don't want to put a hat on the fact that we know musical theater exists. They're gonna go yeah. to a basketball game. Uh, <laughs> that's that's a double header basketball game. 
Uh, yes, exactly. It's a long fucking game. Well, like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't. I, I don't know if that. It, I, maybe it, it doesn't exist now, but I, maybe it existed back in the '60s, like where that. Because again, the the NBA was a much different league back then. But the idea that they would play two games, forty-eight minutes back to back, seems wild. Wild. <laughs> yeah. On top of also the character changes that it, it makes for the character. Yeah. Yes. Um. And so, uh, she he finds out that Fran likes basketball. He sings a song called <laughs> She Likes Basketball. But again, like that's yes. it's a nice song as well. It's a fun song of just like, oh my god, I'm gonna la- like I'm gonna latch onto this one thing that she likes and I'm gonna sing about how much she's I clearly we've we clearly a match made in heaven. Like it's it's funny. Mm-hmm. It's a funny it's a funny thing to latch onto. Um I mean right, that kinda happens all the time. You find out that like someone it's like, oh, they like the same thing that I do. Clearly we are meant to be we're clearly we are soulmates, clearly we're meant to be together, and it's that uh in song form. Which is funny. It's a good bit. <laughs> um then we cut to uh Fran and Sheldrake, like we said, uh having dinner. And then Fran sings a song. Uh, again, I, I love all of Fran's songs. Knowing When to Leave is the song that she sings here. And it's just, mm. again, like, yeah, like, yeah, like you said, it like maybe it makes her a little less universal because she's like so just like obviously singing out how she's feeling in that moment. But I mean, that's, mm-hmm. I, I will argue, I mean, that's what musicals are, right? It's like, it's, it's like so you're, yeah. you are taking, you are translating the close up. You are, t- you are translating, like, the silent close-up of a character and turning it into a piece of song, turning it into an external moment. So, like, yeah, like, something that could just be the camera resting on Shirley MacLaine in that moment <laughs> is now her shouting to the heavens, I don't know when to leave. Day after day after day, like, what the fuck am I doing? Um, when will I fly? When will I walk away? Um, and just getting that point across in just in a way that will... That just that's just how the medium works again. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's like that. That's the thing I like had to like I, I really thought about in this. And because, yeah, I, I haven't been forced to really reckon with my appreciation of musical theater, I guess, lack thereof um, uh, on a day to day basis, because I dig in. It's something I didn't grow up with. And so I've right. just continued to kind of consume films and other forms of art. Um, and so my well, reason we came to Chicago was to get more involved in live theater and uh, uh, and just all the forms of, of live entertainment, but still, as I've like learned more about theater and kind of live comedy, the thing that I've, I've omitted has been musical theater. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm excited. And you're not yeah, alone in that, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, I think the, the earnestness and the, well, don't want to say obviousness, but sort of like the, the, yeah, just like the sort of like overt. Yeah, I'll just say earnestness. I'll stick with that word. Like the yeah. the overt earnestness of the form can be off putting. I completely understand that. Yeah, yeah, and, and and I don't think it's necessarily. And I it feels odd to say it's just like an aesthetic thing at the end of the day of like, oh, I just don't like this choice. But maybe maybe it is. Uh, that being said, like the like when I listen to this soundtrack, it like I found it moving, and I find a lot of these songs moving. That uh, with that though. Uh, singing about him wanting to be a basketball player growing up did kind of break me out of the, out of the, the lyrical mar- narrative being spun for me. So that song didn't do it for me, but I feel like, again, like you mentioned already, a lot of these songs are so idiosyncratic in and of themselves and written to be songs that this, that this music really translates um, whether you like musicals or, or not, or Absolutely. whether you're educated in it or not. 
Do you feel like that was Michael Bennett being like, what if I choreographed a basketball dance? <laughs> number, yeah, that is true. Michael Bennett's <laughs> did. Was... <laughs> Michael Bennett was the original choreographer of this show. Good, good, good factoid. Uh, Rob Ashford directed and choreographed uh, the, uh, the revival. And I believe I remember at the time when I saw it, I was like, this is the hardest working ensemble on Broadway. I remember literally in She Loves She Likes <laughs> Basketball, there's this move where they are, I think like Chuck Sean Hayes is like lying in the center of the stage, like daydreaming, like on mm. his stomach, and the ensemble, they're literally rolling and like jumping over him and then rolling <laughs> again. It's just like insane uh, moves. Yeah, like so whatever. Silly, silly basketball <laughs> number. Uh <sighs> Uh, then we you do know get how this... you play basketball. <laughs> yeah, you know, basketball. Rolling on the floor. Uh, we get the four executives singing Where Can You Take a Girl? Again, your classic charm song, silly, uh, silly fun little number. It pops up a bunch of times in Act 2 as well. It's a great comedic mm. effect. Uh, we get Sheldrake's, uh, <laughs> Sheldrake's uh, Gaston song. Wanting things, uh, his big villain song, uh, which again is like very slow, moving, sad number about his uh, toxic desire to want more in life. Sucks to suck, my dude. <laughs> um, and then we get, um, I think so. Okay, Turkey Lurkey time, which is a, a great fucking number, <laughs> a very silly. Christmas Another one song. that kind of like took me out of it for a second uh, yeah you're just got, like yeah. yeah you're just like what <laughs> exactly exactly yeah so i don't know if either of you have seen uh the film camp or know no. about the f- uh, brand you do you know about this film it's yes been so long but yeah for sure so that was like a freshman in college doing a musical watch it with everybody kind of a movie <laughs> absolutely so i without saying so much i went to the summer camp that that movie is based on um and so every it's it's uh uh Connor it is a film uh written and directed by Todd Graff about a um, okay. about a theater summer camp. Um and if you look it up on Wikipedia you will find out the camp that it is based on and that is where I went uh for a few summers and so pretty much like every session they would show that movie. Okay. Okay. Uh, it was an early Anna Kendrick vehicle, not vehicle, but she is in it. Um <laughs> Um, and it's like, if you want to watch a bunch of teenagers perform musical theater songs that they are not suited for, if you want to see, is it Anna Kendrick sings Ladies Who, Lun- Who Lunch in that, right? I'm pretty sure. I think so. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's very, uh, yeah, it's a very, it's a very silly film, but they sing Turkey Lurkey. I think that was my first exposure to Turkey Lurkey time. And yeah, yeah, mm. Connor, probably like you, I was just like, what the fuck is this song? <laughs> Um, yeah, it just, it just seems like it's on such a different wavelength than the rest of the music. Um, oh, besides the basketball, um, like those are like the two exceptions that like really kind of like, like, oh, this is this is a choice. And like, again, this like makes these characters uh, just a little different. Um, the two show choir moments for sure. Absolutely. This show has it. Those are the show choir moments. Absolutely. And then it does this thing that I think a lot of like early like golden age musicals did where like it has turkey lurkey time but then there's no like big act one closing number it just sort of like it ends mm. on a scene and there's like a probably like a musical sting um but like then this act one end act one ends at the moment where uh baxter finds the cracked compact 
and he's like devastated and that's the moment where we get to take a break uh for 10 15 minutes um in the revival uh, i'll just bring this up here so in the revival the revival saw like i said sean hayes as uh cc cc chuck baxter and Kristen chenoweth as fran and Kristen Chenoweth, of course, <laughs> and like, yeah, like, right, uh, yeah, Star of Bewitched herself, uh, Oklahoma. Kristen Chenoweth. Um, Another Oklahoman. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 very true. Uh, but it's like, she, I, I saw that revival, just not, not right, not right for the role. Just no. absolutely, sure. there was an early Oh, meeting. and also the, the, uh, the trying back in Semechus, the voice of a, of a mouse in a recent, uh, in The Witches. <laughs> Very true. Oh, this all comes full circle. We're using well, every no, she, piece no, of this no, no. podcast. She, yeah, exactly. Oh, God, it's wild. Um, but either way, I, I did read that there was an early workshop reading of Promises, Promises that was Sean Hayes and Anne Hathaway, and I would have oh. loved to see that. I think Anne Hathaway would have been. She, I feel like she is like would have been a perfect fit. Uh, maybe that was like filming, like she was working on something else um, mm-hmm. that conflicted with this revival, but what have you? Um, so I guess, but just to. I guess to give her even more numbers, they were just like, we got to boost this. We got to find a way to make, give Kristen even more numbers and like try and bring even more people in. So for the revival, they added in, I say a little prayer for you, Mm -hmm. like, right, which makes no dramaturgical (laughs) sense. Why would she say, cause she, right. Cause in the, in the fabric of the story, she knows those flowers are from Sheldrake, right? So why would she, she sing this song about Sheldrake? makes no sense it's a love song mm-hmm. oh, strange choice and then they <laughs> and then a, a choice that makes a little more sense but i still am not a fan that they end act one in the revival with her singing a house is not a home which again makes a little more sense dramaturgically but i think it's like you don't need again it's putting a hat on a hat so you don't really mm-hmm. need to throw that in there um act two <laughs> opens with margie mcdougall in a role that, in both the original production and the revival, uh, the actors who played Margie McDougal won Tony Awards for Best oh, Feature, wow. Featured Actress. Uh, Marion Mercer in the original Broadway production, and then uh, Katie Finneran in the revival. It's just like, I, and I get it. Like, I mean, I feel like they beef up the character a little bit more in the production, in Promises, Promises. Uh, than in the apartment. And obviously she gets this big song where she gets to fucking like chow down on the scenery. Um, <laughs> and it's a, it's a fun song. A fact can be a beautiful thing. She gets to, <laughs> she gets the hoots like an owl. Uh, she gets to just like play around with, with Baxter. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a fun role for a character actor to, to have fun with just like at the top of the second act. And then you are out of there. <laughs> You get 10 minutes to get your Tony Award, and then you are just, like, not in the rest of the show. Dream contract, What really. a gig, honestly. And then uh, I, I believe Molly Shannon played it after Katie Finneran left. Molly Shannon took Cute. over this role. Oh. Um, I can see, like, Megan Mullally, like, playing oh, this yeah. character. It's definitely that type. Um, but, yes, it's very fun. Um, and then Fran, and Fran sings maybe... At this moment, my favorite song in the show is Whoever You Are, I Love You, which I feel is just like a de- mm. Again, it's like you're taking this moment of Fran in the apartment right before she takes the sleeping pills, just like singing to the heavens uh, about just like her, her fucking like 
dumb luck in life with love. And it's a beautiful, tragic song. Uh, yeah, the, the, like many uh, Golden Age musicals, the second act does not have a lot of songs, and the songs that there are are usually just reprises of songs that we've heard already. Mm. Um, you get the song called Christmas Day, which for me is just like a complete wash of a thing. Uh, even like a young... they, they So they cut the character of Mrs. Dreyfus, I guess, just to not have as many characters. I mean, it happens, right? Like, you, you cut... <clears throat> Like the economy of characters cannot be uh, as plentiful on stage because you have to pay more actors. And uh, I'm sure David Merrick wanted to be as stingy as possible. And was like, I'm not going to pay another person a higher wage to play Mrs. Dreyfus. No way, no how. Um, so yes, yeah, so they, they pretty much like combine. They, they just have uh, Dr. Dreyfus carry out the entire role of both of the Dreyfuses. Uh, uh, him and Baxter sing A Young Pretty Girl Like You whatever, cute song I think it's like maybe also one of the weakest songs in the piece um, and then we get I feel, like may, I feel like this is maybe the song the most famous song from the show I'll Never Fall In Love Again, right? I feel like, I bet people probably like know the song without even knowing that it's from a musical, right? Yeah, especially the Dionne Warwick Absolutely and then they like Bob Gentry or somebody else did it too, and it was like around the same time as a huge hit. And Johnny Mathis did maybe this song or another one too. Like it's it's and I believe they wrote it. I there's like a whole story behind it where, uh, what's it called? Where like they it was like they were having like out of town tryouts and they had no idea what to put in this uh in this section of the show. And then I think Where they're Bur- getting Back- to know each other and playing gin, rummy, and stuff. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, like, I think Burt Backrack, like, went to the hospital and he, like, wrote the song there because he was, like, uh, I mean, he, what are the lyrics? Like, what do you get when you fall in love? You get pneumonia. I think, like, just, like, being in the hospital, he's, like, well, I guess, like, just from his own experience, he's, like, uh, what good does life get you? you? You get sick and then you die. <laughs> like, what? The, what's the <laughs> fucking point? Uh, but it inspired this beautiful lyric. I mean, may, or maybe it was Hal David who came up with it because he, he's the lyricist. Um, either way, it's just, I mean, it's a lovely lyric and it's a lovely melody. Mm. Um, and again, and I think it does say a lot about Fran's character, right? Obviously it's it's taking what we already know about her and putting it out in the open, but it it does it in a great... <laughs> catchy way right and and it but and it does the beautiful job of both putting out putting the claim of who these characters are but also like secretly uniting them right because they're singing this song about never falling in love together which is yeah. kind of yeah, a magical a beautiful thing. thing yeah while they're falling in love yeah <laughs> who knew um and then you end the show end the show uh with promises promises which again another banger just like, and it's again, like it's got, it's like a train. It's like a promise, it's promises, da, 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 promise. It's just, oh, it's, and it's so, yeah, right? I was just like singing one, two, three, it. One, two, three, one, two. Just changing time signatures too, not 11, four. Take talk, nerds. It's such a bop. I, 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 okay. I do want to call out um terrible line of dialogue that I hope that you can cut out of any production of the show. I was like reading the script. Do we know what we're talking about? It's oh, so no, tell well, us. well it's so it's so fascinating because and again it's another character change from the from the film where Baxter like is like 
putting like when he's with Margie, he's like, ah, oh, I'm gonna donate my body to the to science because of how much sex I have. But then there's kind of this reversal in the musical where he's like, he literally says, quote, you are looking at the only male rape victim in this neighborhood. And I was like, Neil, buddy, what Oof. are you doing? Yikes. Again, completely changes the <laughs> completely changes the dynamic of the character. Completely uh, makes a joke out of men who are sexual assault victims. Uh, just fucking gross. Yeah. Um, whoever has the rights to this, cut that line. Just you don't need it. Uh, real Neil gross. doesn't care. He's dead. Yeah, Neil's Neil's dead. He doesn't care. Hey, Jack Lemmon hanging out. <laughs> Unless uh, wait, uh, do either of us? Does, do any of us share a birthday with Neil Simon? Oh. Oh. Neil Simon. This is the real question. Born on July 4th. Uh, true American hero. America shares a birthday. My birthday's December Simon. 4th. Oh. Close enough. There we go. So it's a half nine, birthday, nine, nine, right? Nine. Um, and that's so cool. is there, do -do -do. Is there another... Do -do -do. Is there another musical that ends with a solo number? Because that's got to be pretty rare. Hmm. Yeah. Company. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Being alive. All right, all right, Josh. Josh Sondheim. <laughs> yeah, Joshy Sondheim. <laughs> just, just ripping it all off from Bert now. Um, a few yeah. other things to sort of fill in the gaps about this show. Um, like I said, it was it lost. It did not win best uh, musical at the Tony Awards uh, in 1969 when it was competing. Mm. Um, it was the other nominees. Uh, it lost to seventeen seventy six. Of course, a great musical about this country we love oh so much. Uh, <laughs> America. Sit down, was, John. The, ori <laughs> the original Hamilton, seventeen seventy six. But the other nominees. It was uh, uh, Zorba was another nominee that year, which is based on a Greek myth. Um, Good guy. <laughs> yeah, we love we love Zorba. Um, the other nominee that year was Hair, which is a, also another good musical, um, which we'll cover on our Patreon because there's a film of it. Ooh. Oh yeah, oh it's a bad film. Too. Yep, I, I, have heard. <laughs> I, I but I love I love that show um, so oh, much. Yeah. Um, but either way, uh, and then uh, what uh, Jerry Orbach won the Tony. Playing CC, um, he was uh, him and Marion. Like I said before, Marion Mercer, one supporting actress. They were the only two actors uh, to win. There was inexplicable, inexplicably, there was no best score category that year. Wow! So what? they couldn't get a, to huh. a, a they couldn't get a Tony Award for their. And this is the only. And that's the thing. This is the only score that uh Bacharach and david ever wrote for broadway man interesting it's so, um, and like it's just like it's like again kind of from an outside perspective like this is like this for some reason this one year they didn't have that award i think two the next year as well i yeah i don't know why the tonys i mean the tonys are a fucking weird thing in their own right yes uh they're a <laughs> mess of an organization um who knows but yeah so it's it's very strange mm. and then like when Company wins, the year of Company, there is a best mm. music and a best lyrics 
category. And so Sondheim wins two Tonys that year for company, but then the next year they just go back to the one. It's so odd. They are such a strange organization. Um, I would say the only other theatricalization of Burt Bacharach's uh, music, uh, there's a musician named Kyle Riabko, and he created this show, I believe it is called Close to You, Bacharach Reimagined. And it's, he's just, it's sort of like a... What a title. I know, it's it's kind of just like a concert-style, uh, like, reinterpretation of the music of Burt Bacharach. And so it's it's like, mm. what if what if an indie pop rock songwriter played, reorchestrated and reimagined the music of Burt Bacharach? It's a fascinating listen. It is an act, like, if you want to, like, hear that music in a completely new, fresh, I'm putting that in quotes, context... Mm-hmm. Go ahead and listen to that. It's direct. Uh, I believe it was directed by. Uh, I believe it was directed by Stephen Hoggett, who. Uh, I want to. I want to make sure. Uh, that I that I'm not lying about that because I hate lying about things on this podcast. It's a sin. Um, it is a sin. Specifically uh, on this podcast. Yeah, if you I lie, don't... I have to cut them out. It's true. You, you got it. On top you of eternal have... damnation, it gets cut out. Oh my god! Yeah, it, when it was at a New York Theater Workshop, the show was called "What's It All About," uh, but then they changed it uh, to "Close to You." Um, yeah, well, Stephen Hoggett. I'm correct. It was directed by Stephen Hoggett, who's this like brilliant choreographer. Um, mm. But yeah, fascinating. Uh, that's. But yeah, I'm. I'm honestly fine with Backrack and David not writing another Broadway score. I think this one like stands on its own as like a beautiful thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, promises, promises again, proving that movie, the movie to musical pipeline was going strong in the late 1960s. Um, proving that there is a way to just transplant a film to the stage in a way that is both faithful, but also creating something new and interesting. Um, and also just maybe, one of the only examples of a Broadway cast recording that can exist outside of the context of its show. I feel like it like exists, these songs and, and this recording can exist as just a nice uh, vinyl to put on in the background while you're reading well, yeah. a book. <laughs> and I think I, I, like I am a testament to that because again, I am uh, coming from this, from such a green perspective, like and like being able to skim through the script and have like some familiarity with it. Obviously the film adaptation, when I put on the the score, both even honestly, the, um, the, the, the 2010 version, both of them stand up on their own. And like, they both like, I found myself, especially with the closing number being so powerful, um, like just, clicking repeat like i just like found myself entranced with the music itself and so like yeah it's it's a really interesting piece for someone who doesn't necessarily have like the same predilection that you guys that y'all have absolutely well connor funny you say (laughs) that because now we're going to put you to the test as someone who all right does has no predilection for musical theater (laughs) as always on movie the musical we end every episode with this question with this question. Oof. Connor Allen mm-hmm. Smith, if you could adapt a movie into a musical that has not already been adapted for the stage, what movie would you pick? Okay. Uh, I think the Galaxy Brain answer that I would like love to see is Adaptation. 
because I think there's a lot of really interesting things that you could like play with form from taking that from written to film than to musical. I think that's like, that's just, there's like a lot of interesting things you could do with that. And I think you could also do that, whether it's a giant musical or you could do that. I could very much envision that being like a back, like backyard off Broadway. Chamber musical. Exactly. Yes, 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 yes. And so I think that would. So double cast or the same person? Well, that's the thing. I, I, how do you? I, a series of mirrors is my only guess. Um, no, yeah, I, I think, or, or you just cast identical twins. That could be really interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. So I think, I think that, like, that's my like galaxy brain. I would love to see how that works. But I think it may be more, uh, more straightforward answer. I was thinking a lot about like Nashville or my favorite uh, film, or I say my favorite film is McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I would love just sure. to see a version of that where someone's just like singing Leonard Cohen um, in the background. Like that's, that sounds lovely. And I don't, and correct me if I'm wrong, if any of those Altmans have been adapted to uh, stage already, but I think I, all those I, are kind of pretty I'm fertile. pretty sure the, I know those two have not. I'm, I'm honestly surprised they've never tried to adapt Nashville. I mean, that, that seems like, Seems like that no seems like the exactly. perfect one to yeah. I mean, as someone I love, it is Nashville. so sprawling. I think that's one of, yeah. I think that is almost a, a practically a perfect film, Nashville. Honestly, yeah. yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so I think that one maybe it, it, it is so big it might be hard or hard to translate, or you might have to get away from what makes it so special in adapting it to a stage play, which is why I bring up my cave and Mrs. Miller. Cause so much of that is like a peanut gallery of like these four couple or five couple side characters that you see like, Oh, they have like their little things. Um, and again, the music is so simple, but it, it's so woven into the actual arc of the whole thing. And then again, you have these two amazing leads that would just be fun to, 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 to dream cast and to actually see go at it. I know you'll be mad at me. I, I still haven't seen McCabe and Mrs. Miller. I'm oh, going to. I'm gonna, is it on I Criterion Channel? I have no idea. I have a Blu-ray <laughs> that you are more than welcome to borrow. Brand, have you seen this? I have not. Oh, my goodness. I've. Um, you all will have to share the Blu-ray then. Um, yeah, I just, I love that film. I think it's just, it's, I, I and somewhat recently realized or gave myself the permission, uh, like, to, like, realize I don't like Westerns because for a long time I thought I did because of where I grew up and, like, with my great-grandfather loving Westerns. But what I do like are these like anti-Westerns or these subversions of those tropes. I think McCabe and Mrs. Miller is a great version of that because uh, it just does it visually, orally, performance-wise. No one in that movie, it's just, it's just, it's just so ambiguous. And the the morality of it all is just so murky and so muddy. And that mm-hmm. comes across on every single component of the film. Yeah. I love that. I mean, really I, cool. I I should have expected as much from you to bring a fucking Altman <laughs> in here as your answer, but it's a good answer. I want to just briefly bring it back to Charlie Kaufman. Um, dude, that yeah. guy like is just screaming out, I want to make a play. And I say, Absolutely. fucking yeah. like between synecdoche <laughs> and yeah. uh, I'm thinking of ending things. I'm like, the dude wants to do a piece of theater and I d- go for it. Do it, my Absolutely. dudes. Oh, yeah. And I think like he's in such an odd career point because he made uh, yeah. whatever you think of it, um, thinking of ending things as like his final film. Like he doesn't think he'll be able to make another film after that. Really? Um, yeah. So, yeah, there's I didn't an interview. Know that. Yeah. If you go on IndieWire, I believe it's, uh, I don't know if it's still like if it's still up, but he did a conversation with Linklater, um, uh, David Elric. Uh, oh, Kaufman, I think I, I remember this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a couple other really um, amazing directors, and he talked about yeah, like the, the reason that like he takes so many bold structural choices with that film and like uh, chose that material is because he didn't think he could get financing for a movie. Period. But then he also wanted to be able to make it as 
his own as possible because he thought when he was making Snatch Idea, he didn't he didn't think that was gonna be the last movie he ever made. But now, like twelve years later, this is essentially this could be his last film. So he wanted to make it and do everything he ever wanted to do, such as the giant musical number. As someone who as someone who loves that movie, mm-hmm. not the worst film to not the worst film to call your last movie. That's all I'll say. No. Um, Connor, I think he'll, yeah, I think we'll have, I think we'll see another uh, Kaufman picture before it's all said and done. I hope so, Connor. Thank you so much for being here. Is there any? Is there anything else you want to you throw in to plug before we close things out? <laughs> yeah, sure. No, I just want to say first off, thank you for having me. I feel like this was this was so much fun, and I feel like I got especially in this like back half an education on musical theater and something that I've been trying to I've been trying to develop. But I that, honestly, it was just like fun to go to church and just like learn and absorb <laughs> all these things. Um, so I hope that it was it was enjoyable for y'all in the audience as well. Um, you but yeah, make a so movie, a movie musical. Let's do it. I would, I would, I, I honestly, I've been watching a lot of Demi in lockdown too. I've been like very interested in like how performance oh, yeah. like translates. Um, and like, even with an Ozu, like I mentioned earlier, they're like, what I love about Ozu films, not only the, like the mundaneness of it is he has these moments of performance throughout it. Like whether it's no performance or, um, mm-hmm. within floating weeds, like you watch just scenes from a play like as uh, and you watch people watch these things as character and as storytelling um so yeah I'm, I'm i'm super interested in playing with this um so we should all chat about that um or whoever was listening wants to chat about that let's chat about it um <laughs> so yeah uh but as far as things to plug yes uh, i have a uh, a podcast with ben k called uh, movie the musical listen to this uh yeah <laughs> listen to this right now yeah, if you're interested in my filmmaking uh you can go to my social media has it but the the Prairie Creek uh, uh, dot pro is our website. I'm sure that will be in in a description. Mm-hmm. Click we'll that. You can below. see. Yep. Thank you. Uh, you can you can go there and see all the things that we've made so far. Look at Happy Birthday Jimmy, which is a project we have brewing up with some really lovely Chicago talent, um, Kevin D'Ambrosio and Keisha Champagne, uh, amongst some other really talented folks. So please go look at that if you can. And then what uh, you said this is going to be about five or so weeks. So I actually have a conversation with Jennifer Reeder that's going to be coming out and published around the same time as this too. So I'm sure I'll be oh, posting yeah. about that. But a couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of sitting down with Jennifer Reeder and just talking about movies. And that was a whole nother world thing. So yeah, um, check that out. Yeah. But I think oh, that's yeah. it. That sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's good. It's a good time. Yeah. Okay. Uh, wonderful. We'll, we'll yeah. Con- Connor, you and this like beautiful cohorts of chicago filmmakers making really scrappy really humane really intimate works um keep keep an eye out on for them so some really great stuff uh so thank you for being here uh i want to as always thank brad moorhead for producing and editing this beautiful thing Uh, i want to thank you all for listening I want to thank Emily Harrington for our artwork. I want to thank M. Modaf and Josh Stanley for our kick-ass theme song. If you <laughs> like the show, be sure to rate us, review us, subscribe so you can get future episodes. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Movie the Musical. If you want to support the podcast and get some sweet bonus content, go to patreon.com slash movie the musical. And be- consider becoming a monthly member where we have our bonus co- our bonus podcast entitled Movie the Musical the Movie, where we talk about movies that are musicals. Um, where we'll talk about hair, which came up in this episode. We'll do it. We'll talk about hair. Why not? Um, we love we love it. Hair, 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 hair. Um, <laughs> keep on singing and stay well. And that's all I got. 